into Wendell's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right, play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports, mainly Super Bowl 54. It is finally here after two weeks between the divisional rounds, the divisional championships, and the Super Bowl is finally here. What do you call it now? The Super Bowl, the big game, the hullabaloo, the game of the century, the game of the year, whatever you want to call it. It is now here between San Francisco and Kansas City, two weeks off, as I mentioned before, between the conference championships and the Super Bowl. I really want to thank Eric G and the Pat Jones Show. It's a show out in Tulsa that you can catch. It's the sports animal. And for years, I have always been talking about what a waste of time. This is ridiculous. The two weeks off between the divisional rounds and the Super Bowl is a joke. It's just a way for the media to talk a little bit more about it. It's ridiculous. They should go straight from the divisional championship, straight from uh, that to the Super Bowl. No questions, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And listening a few weeks ago to the show, which I do frequently with Eric G and Pat Jones and, this, and, the, and such, he was talking about the reason why there's a two-week gap between the divisional rounds and the Super Bowl is because that first week is basically for the players to get everything together, get their uh, family members together and get them situated and make sure there's enough tickets and all this other ancillary stuff that really doesn't pertain to them playing in the Super Bowl or getting them ready for the Super Bowl. Anything in terms of preparation for their families to go and hotel reservations for friends and accommodations and for the kids and everything, those are taken on the first week of the, after the divisional round is over. So you take care of all those things and then you fly out to the site of the Super Bowl and then you get ready for the game itself. And it also gives the assistant coaches a lot more time to scheme and devise and put together a good game plan. So when I heard Coach Jones and Eric G talk about that in terms of why that first week is mainly, you know, that, that's mainly the reason why they do that. I just said to myself, ah, okay. Now it makes sense. Now it seems a little bit better. And really, I don't know if there's any statistical data that shows that the games were better with one week off instead of two weeks. I don't know about anything about that. But, you know, when you put it that way, and Coach Jones is the guy who coached at Oklahoma State and he coached with the Miami Dolphins and he has a lot of experience coaching on the college and pro level. So it's like, all right, that makes sense. That makes sense in terms of that first week getting everything together, getting your personal matters together, getting your family members and your friends and your kids and everything together to make sure they're situated and make sure that they're taken care of, take care of those responsibilities. And then you have the entire week plus to get ready for the Super Bowl, the game that's going to actually be played. So, okay, I got it. I understood. I understood it. So now the two weeks leading up to the game, I am much better in discussing and talking about why that is needed more than just the one week. But, you know, the week leading up to the games, this has just been one of the more muted Super Bowl weeks, of course, because of the tragedy of Kobe Bryant and the seven members, along with his daughter who perished in that uh, plane crash, that helicopter crash. You know what I was thinking about? 
it probably had to be about Wednesday, maybe. Wednesday or Thursday. Now, later on, the last segment of the show, I'm going to, again, speak a little bit more clearly about Kobe Bryant. When I did my emergency podcast that Sunday, the day that he died, it was all straight from emotion and my thoughts and feelings, not only about Kobe Bryant dying, but the fact that his 13-year-old daughter died. And I was mainly just speaking from the heart. Now, since I've had a chance to kind of clear my mind and kind of go through the days and get through the days and live life and live my life and kind of step back a little bit and now I have a different perspective, not maybe a different perspective, but a different way I can talk about the life of Kobe Bryant and what his death means. And I'm going to be talking about that today. The last uh, segment of the podcast, I'm going to save that for last. But I was just thinking about there had to be someone. And I'm not saying that this is a league-wide deal. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm, I'm quite sure there was someone about Wednesday or Thursday, while people were still talking about Kobe Bryant, and rightfully so, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that when you have the media members, when the media day sessions were there down at the Super Bowl and people were talking about, give me your thoughts and feelings about Kobe Bryant and the Kobe Bryant story held, you know, was, over, was over the festivities of the Super Bowl. I'm quite sure there was somebody in that offense, at that office, office, related to the NFL who were just thinking and saying to themselves, now not loud, of course, because they're not going to do that, but they were probably just sitting there going, man, you know, I, can we can we kind of forget this for a little bit? Can we kind of like, you know, maybe talk about Kobe Bryant sometime out? I mean, isn't this something where it's kind of like, maybe this is a, a basketball deal? I mean, he didn't play in the NFL. He played in the NBA, man. A lot of our players never even met Kobe Bryant. I mean, why are we keeping, why are we bringing this up? Why are you asking Richard Sherman and these guys these questions? We should be talking about the game. We should be having Andy Reid answer funny questions. We should have guys from the TMZ and these other people talking about, hey, Jimmy Garoppolo, I want to marry you. I want to have sex with you. Oh, and all these other stupid things. That's what the Super Bowl week should be about. It should be about the NFL. It shouldn't be about some dead NBA basketball player, no matter how great he is. I'm quite sure there is somebody in the NFL, and I'm quite sure it's a very small minority, and we'll never know who that is, maybe until decades down the road. But I'm quite sure there is somebody representing that league. There is somebody who works for that league who around Tuesday or Wednesday had that had those thoughts and feelings. Like, damn, man, this is our week. This is our this is this is something where it's kind of like this is a Super Bowl. We're supposed to be dominating the sports the sports storylines. We're supposed to be the center of attention. We're supposed to be the stars of the show. We're supposed to we're the league. That's supposed to be getting all the attention. Why are we still talking about this doggone NBA basketball player? Damn it. We got a Super Bowl to play in four flipping days. I'm quite sure there is a guy out there or a gal out there who in the representing the NFL, who's getting a paycheck from the NFL, who ignorantly and stupidly thought that way. Because you have to remember what happened with Kobe Bryant. This is the first time I can remember in terms of the week leading to the Super Bowl where it wasn't just the entire sports world stopped and the entire focus went to the destination of where the game was being played. And everything that week was about Radio Row. Everything that week was about the NFL alumni and the Hall of Fame players coming back to talk about the Super Bowl or to hawk their products or talk about themselves. Or The whole week leading up to the Super Bowl has always been focused on 
the NFL, always. And this is the first time I can remember that there was less enthusiasm surrounding the events of the week because, again, of the death, of the tragedy, what happened with Kobe Bryant. So I'm quite sure at the beginning of the Super Bowl, and I, and I will say this, at the beginning, the start of the Super Bowl, the league is going to recognize Bryant and Gigi, his daughter, and they should. I'm not saying that, oh, come on, this, that, and the other is an NBA basketball player, this, that, and the other. No, 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 no. I think because of the global impact that Kobe Bryant made first mainly as a basketball player and then his mama mentality and how many people he touched through all spectrums of life and athletics, professional athletics. I think the way in the course, the way that he died along with his daughter, beautiful daughter, I think that the NFL should take a moment of silence and recognize the loss of not just Kobe Bryant and not just his daughter, Gigi, but also the seven other people who died on the helicopter. We're talking about John Antebelli and Carrie Antebella and Alyssa Antebelli, excuse me. Um, John Antebelli was the head baseball coach at Orange Coast College in Costa Mesa. And Alyssa Antebelli played on the same basketball team as Brian's daughter. And Christina Mauser, who was the basketball coach at Harbor Day School in Newport Beach, where Kobe's daughter attended school. And Sarah Chester and her middle-aged daughter, Peyton, who were also on board. And Peyton was a teammate of Gianna. So, and of course, the, the pilot. I think all of those guys should be recognized. And also, someone else I think the NFL should honor and hold a moment of silence for. And it's one of their own. And I know because of the news surrounding of what happened with Kobe Bryant, mainly with Kobe Bryant and his daughter, that this kind of slid under the radar and not too many people picked up on it. And not too many people, even if they did, not too many people gave it the proper respect of news that it should have been given. But I think also a moment of silence should be given before the game starts, not just to Kobe, Gigi, and the seven others who lost their lives in that plane uh, helicopter crash, but also Hall of Fame defenseman uh, Ken Chris Dolben. The Hall of Fame announced on Tuesday that he died the night after a battle with cancer. He was 58 years old, and in 2018, he had surgery to remove a brain tumor. So for those who don't know Chris Dolben, he was part of the Minnesota Vikings from 1985 to 1993 and ended his career with the club in 1999. He had 150 and a half sacks, 22 coming in 1989 when he led the NFL along with eight interceptions and three touchdowns. He was introduced into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2012. I mean, him, Keith Millard, Joey Browner, Joey Browner, I think, uh, who was the coach of that team? I remember that team in 87 made the conference championships loss to the Doug Williams-led Washington football team, 17-10 to 10 at RFK Stadium. That was a team that had Wade Wilson at the quarterback, Anthony Carter at the running back, Darren Nelson from Stanford as the running back, Anthony Carter with the wide receiver, excuse me. But they had a really good, they had a really good defensive team. Keith Millard with a defensive tackle, preceding John Randall. And then, of course, you had Chris Dolman and, so they had a really good football team during that uh, during that team during that era. So Dolman was definitely a Hall of Fame football player. He died. So we're talking about a family member of the NFL. We're talking about one of the elite football players who's ever played the game, a Hall of Fame member. So I think before the game starts, and especially since he died the week of the festivities leading to the Super Bowl, I think that the league should honor him and his family with a moment of silence. Just make it all together. We give a moment of silence to Kobe Bryant, 
his beautiful daughter Gigi and the seven beautiful souls that lost their lives in the helicopter crash last Sunday. And also let's give a moment of silence along with them to Chris Dolman who lost his battle with cancer. And a man again was only 58 years old, a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So it's been a crazy, crazy, absolutely crazy week in terms of the festivities leading up to the Super Bowl. Normally, I don't pay any attention to it. Normally, when it comes to, I've never been down the radio row. I don't want to go down the radio row. It's a waste of time to go down the radio row. I don't listen to anything coming out of the Super Bowl week of for me to discuss. I just don't do it. There's too many other things going on. I can talk about my Georgetown Hoyas. I can talk about college basketball. I can talk about what's going down with the Australian Open and tennis. I can talk about what's happening in the NBA. I can talk about so many things. I don't need to be sitting there going ad nauseum talking about the backup center versus the third string defensive tackle and the offensive defensive line. And I can't give you such wonderful prognostication and an and analysis as, yes, I think for the Kansas City Chiefs to win the football game, I think most definitely they are going to have to put more points on the scoreboard than the San Francisco 49ers. I think at the end of the game, at the end of the fourth quarter, if the Kansas City Chiefs can score more points than the San Francisco 49ers, I really like their chances of winning the football game. Now, how are they going to do that? Well, Patrick Mahomes is going to be a key player for that. I mean, he's a great quarterback. So how is that defense from San Francisco going to deal with the prowess, the passing prowess and the offensive offensive juggernaut, which is the Kansas City Chiefs? And for the San Francisco 49ers, for them to have a chance to win the football game, they're going to have to control the line of scrimmage. They're going to have to put heat on Mahomes to make him throw into some double coverages or make him read some defenses wrong in the coverage, have Richard Sherman make a few plays. If the San Francisco 49ers can do that, oh, of course, and establish their running game. Now, how do they establish their running game? But of course, they control the line of scrimmage. So that's going to be, the game is going to be won in the trenches. So and I don't need that bullshit. I don't, I don't need that nonsense. I just don't need it. Monday, let's talk about how are the San Francisco 49ers going to win this football game. Tuesday on the show, we'll talk about how the how the Kansas City Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl. Thursday, we're going to talk about what does it mean for the Kansas City Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. Wednesday, we're going to talk about the impact of the San Francisco Niners winning the Super Bowl. Friday, we're going to talk about what does it mean for the quarterbacks to win the Super Bowl. Also on Friday, we're going to talk about what does it mean for the NFL head coach, uh, Andy Reid and... And Kyle Shanahan to win the Super Bowl. Friday, we're going to talk about all of the celebrities that I saw. We're going to be talking about Hollywood stars. We're going to be talking about these brain-dead, boneless supermodels that come to do these events. And I'm going to be talking about how I went to this party and I ran into this guy and I ran into that guy. And, ooh, isn't that going to be super fun? No, it's not. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always checking out when it comes to... Again, if there's a story that happens during the week or two weeks leading to the Super Bowl that can have a real impact. I mean, a real impact. I mean, I'm talking about what happened with, uh, oh, who was that guy? Was it Stanley Robinson? Oh, my goodness. I forgot what happened. Uh, there was a couple of instances. I think it was the I think it was the 49ers when they played the Cincinnati Bengals, I think, back in 1989, I think it was, I don't know if it was Stanley Robinson, I don't want to just be starting naming off names if I don't have the entire facts, but I remember there was an important player for the, the Cincinnati Bengals who got caught using drugs or doing something crazy like that, so 
He was, of course, unable to play in the Super Bowl. I remember when the Oakland Raiders played the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and I think Barrett Robbins was caught in Tijuana doing something nefarious, or there was something going on. I don't know if he had a mental breakdown or something like that. Something mentally happened to him, so he was unavailable. I think it was, who was it for New Orleans? Oh, there was a safety for New Orleans. The name escapes me right now, but he was caught doing something stupid. Darren somebody? I forgot who it was. Was it Darren Sharper? I don't know. I don't want to just start naming names. But uh, so unless it's something of that magnitude, which can have a real impact. I mean, God forbid if something happened to Richard Sherman or Jimmy Garoppolo or Patrick Mahomes or Tyree Devins blows out his knee in practice or something crazy like that where it's really going to affect the outcome of the game, affect the the magnitude of the game, then yeah, I'm on all, I'm all of that and want to hear what people have to say. But other than that, I really don't give a flying flip about the parties that these people went to. I really don't give a damn about the legends of the NFL coming on the shows and hawking their products. I really don't care about Hall of Fame football players who probably don't watch too much football talking about these two teams. I don't care about any of that stuff. So all I want to know is just let me know, and I've been very consistent about this. I've watched the Super Bowl now since... When did the first time I watched the Super Bowl? I think it was 1976. I watched the Oakland Raiders and the Minnesota Vikings play. So ever since 1976, all the way up till this year, so we're talking about 43 years, something like that, I think I've only missed... I think I've only missed two Super Bowls. I know I missed the second Dallas versus Buffalo Super Bowl. I was in... I was working that day. I was working up in Daly City. I was selling cars at Daly City Toyota with my man Sam Baccalini. And that day, I missed it. I, uh, so that was the one time that I missed the Super Bowl. I tried sneaking in. I tried sneaking in, taking looks at the game itself. But I think at the time, I was selling a car. And if you ever bought a car, you know it's a long, arduous process, especially back then when you would haggle and go back and forth and take a look at their deal and come back and say, no, nah, that's not happening. We need, to, we need to have you take 2005 We need you to for uh, 2500 down and 450 a month. How about that? No, well, it is a great car. You know you need a car, you know, with your credit score. You, need, you know you need to get that up. Of course, with your credit score being bad, with this deal right here, within a few years, you can refinance. Your credit score will be better, and this is going to help you if you, you know, your credit score is very important to you when you need to go buy a house, when you need to get a job, when you need to take out a loan. So you need to start rebuilding your credit right now, and there's no better way to do that than with this car. So we can go ahead and get you down for 2500 down and 450 No. No, well, what's it going to take for you to leave out of this lot today with this car? How much is it going to take? Can you do the twenty five hundred down? Okay, you can do two thousand, and you can pay how much? Three fifty a month. Three fifty a month. Okay. Woo. Oh boy, I don't know about this. This is going to be tough. My manager, he's not in a very good mood. I'm, I'm really going to be. Boy, I'm really going to be cursed out when I show him this offer. But you know what? I'm there for you. I want to make this happen. I want to see you in this car. I believe you and this car can be perfect perfect partners together you look awesome in that car you look fantastic in that car did i ever tell you that it gets fantastic gas mileage i mean you can get from home to work in a full tank of gas a full tank of gas if you just take it from home to work which you said is the main reason why you're looking for a car you can do that with and you can fill up your tank on monday and not put a nozzle into the gas tank again until sunday that's how great the gas mileage is on this car all right so boy i tell you i'm just going to go back to my manager here and oh shoot, I don't know, wish me luck it's a long shot it really is a long shot but you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna do everything humanly possible for you I'm gonna take all the bullets that were intended for you I'll take them for you because I want to see you in that car okay here we go <laughs> all right
Hey, hang with me. Pray for me. <laughs> All right, boss. She said that she can do 305. All right, yeah. She, she said we can do 305, $2,500 now. How much would be my how much would my commission be if we settled on that? How much is it gonna be? Five fifty? I get five fifty from that deal? Should we close it? Let's close it. Boom. Here we go. Great, fantastic. All right. Ah. Woo! <laughs> oh man. Hi, Mr. Smith. Mrs. Smith. Oh boy. He I'm gonna tell you right now. He was not happy. Oh, he was not happy at all. Boy, when he saw me come back in, he you know what he said to me? You won't believe this. Jim, he said this. He said, if you don't have that offer, get out of my room or else you're fired. <laughs> I tell you, he just he said that. But I calmed him down. I said, look, you know, hey, this guy, his wife, his family, they're good people. They're wonderful people. They're daily city people. Come on, let's go ahead and do this for them. Let's make this work. Let's see what we can do. Let's go ahead and do this. And I finally, it was tough, Mr. Smith. I'm telling you, he he, he verbally beat me up really good. I mean, can you see the battle scars on me? <laughs> it was something else. But yeah, finally got it down. Congratulations. Congratulations. Look, we just, you know what? We just, instead of paying 300, we got it up to 325. That's, I swear that's the best I can do. I'm telling you, he was he he took out weaponry. He took out weaponry when I said three hundred, but three twenty five. You can do that, can't you? Congratulations, right? First one who talks says nothing. First one who talks loses. So three twenty five a month for sixty months, twenty five hundred dollars down. The car's yours. Congratulations. Stick out hand. Wait, wait, wait. You got a deal. All right. <laughs> Congratulations. Let me go ahead and get my paperwork. Let me get my manager in here. Boom, bang, bing. We're all set. That was my that was my experience when the Dallas Cowboys were playing the Buffalo Bills. Sorry, I didn't mean to go off into such car speak, but sometimes when I watch um sometimes when I watch uh, what's that show on Bravo? Uh the uh, um, real estate guys in New York, in LA. How they come up with that stuff. Sometimes I do miss the negotiating days of selling cars. But basically, I just wanted to get that out of me. Oh, that felt good to say that too. Woo, it felt twenty. It felt 2500 down, 350 a month for 60 months type good. Shake the hand. I can tell you stories, man. I sold a car to a woman or a girl. What was her name? What was her name? She was the, she was the sister of the office secretary. This office secretary at that time was like 19 years old. No, she was 18 years old. That's right, because she was a senior in high school. And I was like 23, 22, 23, 24 years old. Effa, her name was Effa, a Filipino girl. She was beautiful. She was beautiful. I used to hang around. When I would do Bell the Bells and in the morning, there was nothing that, you know, doing. When you had when you do Bell the Bell, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. for the you know, on a Tuesday you know for the first eight or nine hours, ain't nobody going to become stepping on that lot. So, man, I would go down to that reception area, and I would flirt with that high school girl all day long. She would wear, she would wear some stuff, some nice-fitting clothes. I mean, she was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I know. Me being 23, her being 18 and still in high school. I know. I know. But, woo, she was she was smoking. And she had her she had a sister who was more my age. And she needed to buy a car. And I was like, man, bring her to me. <laughs> That's your sister. If she looks anywhere within the realm of the stratosphere of looking as good as you, bring her to me. 
I'm going to sell her a car and sell me all at the same time. So she sold her a car, got a couple of dates out of her, but uh, nothing went after that. But yeah, the, my my car selling days down at Hayward Toyota and and um, what uh, Fremont Toyota and Daly City, a couple of places in San Francisco. Those were some those were some good times. Shout out to my man. Sam Baccalini, one of the best people I've ever met in life. All right, enough about that. So, yeah, man. So the uh, San Francisco 49ers, the the <clears throat> excuse me, the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl 54. You ready to talk about this? Come on, man. I didn't hear you. I said, are you ready to talk about this? Then let's get into it. Windows World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Storyline for Super Bowl 54, the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. For Kansas City, you know what they are, trying to win his first NFL championship since 1969 with Lenny Dawson and the head coach, Hank Strand, talking about matriculating the ball down the field, boys, and Mike Garrett at the running back, 23-7 victory over the Purple People Eaters, the best version, I believe, of the Purple People Eaters, that included Jim Marshall and Alan Page and Carl Ellard. 23-7, that victory basically said to the NFL, the snubs, uh, the, the uh, hierarchies, that, you know what, the AFL is legit, Super Bowl three. the Jets over the Baltimore Colts was not a fluke, so, wow, props given, respect given to the AFL uh, they merged with the NFL, so that was a, really the last championship St. Kansas City won where it was AFL versus NFL back in 1969. So the Chiefs are looking to be NFL champions, at least for the first time since then. I compared them the last podcast where we were talking about the participants of the Super Bowl. I compared the Kansas City Chiefs franchise, one with such at the Cleveland Browns, the Minnesota Vikings, the Detroit Lions teams who are really historic franchises. If you think about it, one of the bedrock franchises of the AFL was at that time the Dallas Texans and Lamar Hunt moved that program or moved that franchise after they won a championship. They moved the franchise from Dallas to Kansas City. So the Kansas City or that organization is, you could say, one of the, the historical franchises in NFL history because how much less of a wonderful product would the NFL be without those teams from the AFL such as the New York Titans then went on to become the New York Jets and the Oakland Raiders who started out in San Diego and went on to become the Oakland Raiders and of course the San Diego Chargers who started out I believe in Los Angeles and these other wonderful franchises who have been so synonymous with my generation and the younger generation with the NFL, well, the Kansas City Chiefs are a very proud franchise. And again, I mentioned them in congruence with the Detroit Lions and the Cleveland Browns and such former really great, strong historical franchises who over the past three or four decades had fallen on hard times in terms of being relevant, in terms of winning Super Bowl. The Detroit Lions haven't done anything since the 1950s when Bobby Lane was the quarterback. The Baltimore Colts, they moved to the uh, they moved to Indianapolis, forget them. I was speaking about the Cleveland Browns. They haven't been anything since Leroy Kelly was toting the rock for them. And Brian Sipe 
back in the 80s with the quarterback along with Sam Reticliano at the head coach and Najee Newsom at the tight end. You're also speaking about a team like the Minnesota Vikings who have been good. They have been very good during the regular season throughout the last time that they went to a Super Bowl, but since 1976, that was the last time that the Vikings went to the Super Bowl. And even though they've had good teams, and even though they've been to NFC championships, they haven't gotten over the precipice and gotten themselves back to the Super Bowl, let alone winning one. So when I say the Kansas City Chiefs are were in that were in that space, they have now been lifted out of that space because now they're playing for a Super Bowl. And if they win it, well, then that would be absolutely unbelievable so we're speaking about those type of storylines Andy Reid the head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs he's trying to shed the label best coach never to win a championship he's almost like the David Duvall of NFL head coaches Patrick Mahomes trying to begin his campaign as the greatest quarterback ever I need just in listening to just a few of the podcasts of reputable people on these podcasts throughout the week them speaking about if Patrick Mahomes wins this Super Bowl, is he the greatest quarterback ever? Whoa, 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 sunshine. Let's slow down just a little bit. You speaking about reaching now. Hey, man, no, dis- I mean, no disrespect to Tom Brady, right? I mean, no disrespect to Peyton Manning or Terry Bradshaw or Johnny United or anybody who's Played the game of football at the quarterback position in the NFL, AFL, CIA, AFC, ESPN, the FWTF. I mean, the man has only been a starting quarterback for two years. Those two years have been absolutely extraordinary, no doubt about it. But if he wins the Super Bowl, is that going to put him all of a sudden now with the greatest who's ever played the game or even the most illogical, nonsensical take I heard during the week? Is that going to make him one of the greatest quarterbacks who've ever played the game after two seasons as the starting quarterback? Whoa, that's a, that's that being bold, huh? That's what I guess you can call a quote-unquote hot take. Whoa, man, let's slow down on that one. I don't care if Patrick Mahomes throws for 700 yards and 17 touchdowns. Let's just slow pump the brakes on putting him in the same class as Joe Montana and Warren Moon and all these other great NFL, Steve Young, all of these great NFL quarterbacks who've actually done some things, have actually had a career more than, oh, I don't know, two years as your starting quarterback. Good Lord have mercy. I mean, I don't care how great he does, how great he is. To put him in that same category, Jim Plunkett has won two quarter, two uh, NFL championships. He's won two Super Bowls, and even he's not in the Hall of Fame. So, man, let's pump the brakes on this Mahomes loving in terms of all of a sudden, him being one of the greatest quarterbacks to play. This is squarely, I, I, I would agree with anybody that'll say that if, regardless of what he does in the Super Bowl, even if he goes out and imitates Jared Goff, the performance that he had in last uh, last year's Super Bowl, even if Patrick Mahomes throws up a stinker like that and appears to be not ready for the moment, I still think Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the league right now. And I still think Patrick Mahomes, despite the rise of Lamar Jackson, who just won the NFL MVP, despite the emergence of such guys as uh, Deshaun Watson, the improvement of Josh Allen, and some of these young guys, Baker Mayfield looking to get back on track after a, uh, a, a very good rookie year, Russell Wilson continuing his resume building for the Hall of Fame, despite all of these 
really good quarterbacks that we have right now and emerging potential Hall of Fame quarterbacks. I'm not saying Lamar and all these other guys are Hall of Fame quarterbacks right now, but these guys are now having the real opportunity for them to vie for Hall of Fame consideration if they continue their improvement, if they can continue to have the year-to-year advancement in their skills by year 12 or 13 or 14 if they're fortunate enough to be playing football that long. So I still think Patrick Mahomes is going to be that standard bearer. I still think Patrick Mahomes in a golden era of five, six, seven, eight years down the road is still going to be that guy to then be compared to the great quarterbacks like a Dan Marino or Aaron Rodgers when he retires or a, or a Tom Brady, Peyton Manning and such. But to say that now, after two seasons at the starting quarterback in the in the NFL, albeit they've been outstanding, tremendous, historically great. Let's just let's just pump the brakes on that. I remember some guy by the name of Dan Marino back in the days where you could actually cover somebody in the passing game, throwing for a boatload of yards. I believe at the age of twenty three years old and bringing the Miami Dolphins to the Super Bowl where they lost to the Joe Montana led. San Francisco 49ers, I believe, out there in Palo Alto, 38-16. And everybody was sitting there talking about, eh, don't worry, Dan's going to win many more of these. Or don't worry, Dan's going to be back to many more Super Bowls despite the fact that they don't have a running game. Who cares? Dan Marino's going to come back and he's going to win championships and he'll go down this, that, and the other. And what, 16, 14, 13 years later, or 15 years later, when he's being hobbled off the field after getting beat up and destroyed by the Jacksonville Jaguars with Jimmy Johnson as the head coach. I think the final score of that game was, what, 62-7, to some nonsense like that? Everybody was sitting there going, oops, well, I guess the um, prognostication of Dan Marino, Dan Marino winning multiple Super Bowl championships might have been just a little bit fine, just a little bit of a stretch. So, please, let's just calm down. Let's just give Patrick Mahomes the ability to build his career and let's not have somebody who actually said something stupid such as Patrick Mahomes is going to go down as a great quarterback and one of the great quarterbacks if he wins this game. And because Patrick Mahomes might not win the game, he looks stupid in that prognostication. Of course, the prognosticator then again does not sit there and say, yeah, my bad. I was jumping the gun a little bit. My, my fault. I was a little bit enthusiastic, too enthusiastic in my praise and adulation of Patrick Mahomes. Instead of being a man or being a woman and saying I was wrong about that. Well, of course, you know what those in sports media do. Not everybody, but you know, those who need to build their brand and get a paycheck and need to be conf- uh, need to be confrontational and controversial. They'll just blame Patrick Mahomes and talk about what a bum he is. I wasn't wrong about him being generationally great. Patrick Mahomes is just a bum. So don't blame me, blame him. Oh, the wonders, the enjoyment of listening to sportscasters and sports talk people talk sports, some of them, huh? What a joy. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So on the San Francisco side of things, because we talked about the storylines for, we talked about the storylines for Kansas City, for San Francisco, and we're talking about, I think really not too many people have brought this up, but I'm going to bring it up. This game for San Francisco, San Francisco. now he might sit there and be like, eh, no, not really, man. You know, different times, different places, different situations. Not going there, not going to want to talk about this. But I'm quite sure in their private moments, this is a redemption opportunity for Kyle Shanahan after the Super Bowl loss to New England. 
when he was the Atlanta Falcons offensive coordinator. Because if you remember, we all know the story. You know, they were up 28 to 3, and Brady said, fuck this, and he came back and this, that, and the other. Well, and it was interesting because after that game, it was interesting to hear a lot of the criticism from the national media and the local media down there in Atlanta really focus their their anger on Kyle Shanahan almost more than head coach uh, Dan Quinn. It was interesting. Oh my goodness, 28 to 3 and you're still passing the football. This is what well, is ridiculous. Why did he run the football this that, and the other? I was one of the few people. I'm not sitting there talking about I was one of the few people because I'm so great you need to carved my face on the side of a mountain in North Dakota. Hey, hey, hey. No, but I was just like, man, isn't that something? Because I've always said, you go down being who you are. That's my deal. When Bill O'Brien, I forgot in the game against Kansas City, when he went for it on fourth down. No, 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 no. It was the game against um, Buffalo in the first round of this year's playoffs. And he went for it on fourth down when he could have iced the game and Deshaun Watson and the quarterback sneak was stopped early and Buffalo took the ball, went all the way down to kick the field goal to put it in overtime and people were just killing Bill O'Brien. That's the reason why he sucks and that's the reason why he shouldn't be the GM. There's many other reasons why he shouldn't be the GM and why he's not an awesome coach, but that's for another podcast. But, oh, this is terrible. This is horrible. How can you go for it on fourth down? You kick the field goal and that way Buffalo needs a touchdown to win the game and Josh Allen was, was not living up to expectations during that game. He was choking in the second half, and you give Buffalo an opportunity to tie the game. This is terrible. This is horrible. What a stupid, awful, terrible call by um, Bill O'Brien. And I said, no, it wasn't. Because if you go back and check the MO, the DNA of Bill O'Brien, this is what he does. This is who he is. So, yeah, in that situation, he's going to go for it. He learned from the Belichick tree. Then on fourth down, the percentages of you making it are greater, you go for it. And if you lose, and if you don't make it, then you rely on your defense to go ahead and stop and make plays. And Houston should have had the defense to go ahead and stop the Buffalo Bills from going down and kicking the field goal. Look, I'm not going to go on and on about uh, the game that's no longer relevant, Houston and Buffalo, but my whole point is that this is what Kyle Shanahan during that season was all about. He was about staying aggressive. He was about passing the football. He had made an MVP of the league out of Matt Ryan that year. And you just continued what you're doing, especially when you saw it, when you saw New England getting hot, when you saw Tom Brady putting it into motion and you saw that comeback taking place. This is not the time you go sit on the lead. This is the time you go and you try to increase the lead. So that's one of those things where, you know what, Tom, um, Cal Shanahan, after that ball game, in terms of whether he did the right thing, he should be sleeping very well at night. There should be no nightmares about what he did, about his philosophy and continuing to be aggressive against the New England Patriots. But you know he did. You know as a coach, you know he's always thinking about that. You know he's always dealing with what ifs, right? So this is a, this is almost like redemption for him to go ahead and to... That stain will always be there of him being part of a team that lost that Super Bowl to the New England Patriots. Historic. I don't know if we're ever going to see something like that happen again. But this is a way for it just to add a little bit of, you know, just to feel a little bit better in terms of, you know, I got myself a Super Bowl championship and I did it, did it as a head coach. So that's a storyline right there. Also, you know what? I talked about this. The reclamation project of 
Jed York, the chief operating officer or one of the owners of the team. Again, if you remember 2016, so that's not even four seasons ago, Jed York was considered a joke. San Francisco 49 you know what I'm talking about. All you diehard San Francisco 49er fans, think back to 2016. Think back to the time when you guys were 2-14 and 14 and Chip Kelly was your head coach and Blaine Gabbert was your quarterback. Remember those days. And remember what you were speaking about. Remember back in those days when Jim Harbaugh was fired by Jed York because Jed York felt that Harbaugh was getting too much publicity. He was getting too much of the spotlight. And Jed York wanted the spotlight also. You remember that? So he ran Harbaugh out of town, a team that took that squad to the NFC Championship game where they lost to the Seattle Seahawks and the Legion of Boom. He took them to the Super Bowl where they were so close to winning the championship over the Baltimore Ravens. He turned that franchise around. And because of Jed York's ego, he decided that Jim Harbaugh wasn't right for the job. Now, Jim Harbaugh can grind and get on their nerves and annoy the best of them. But you know what? When you're the type of coach and you're having the type of success that Jim Harbaugh had, with that San Francisco 49er team, the emergence of Colin Kaepernick, the difficult decision that Jim Harbaugh had to make in replacing Alex Smith, a very good game manager, after I believe they lost in the playoffs to the New York Giants and Eli Manning in a very ugly defensive-minded but really ugly offensive game, where during that next season, Jim Harbaugh made the difficult decision, the unpopular decision, to go with Colin Kaepernick at the quarterback and then bench Alex Smith very Harbaugh turned that squad around made the right moves in that situation the Jed York's ego wouldn't allow for the relationship to flourish so he got rid of Jim Harbaugh and brought him some clown named Jim Tom Sula and of course everything started going down the drain so by the end of this by the time Jed York finally got religion and finally said, yeah, uh, I need to kind of like change my ways a little bit. The team was 2-14. and 14. Kaepernick, that was Kaepernick's last season in the NFL, I believe. I think it was his last season in the NFL, one of the two. And he was regarded by, by many publications. I remember reading this article in USA Today talking about what a horrible owner Jed York is, how the San Francisco 49ers will never repeat the type of success that they had when Eddie DeBarlow was the owner of the team as long as Jed York and the York family is running the squad, especially Jed York, this young billionaire punk, punk kid who's making these decisions for the San Francisco 49ers. Well, Jed York was smart enough to say, you know what, I'm going to hire Mike uh, Kyle Shanahan. I'm going to hire a GM of the team whose name, oh my goodness, Who's John Lynch? Holy mackerel. I'm going to hire the GM, John Lynch, and I'm not going to give them just four or five year contract, which is a standard procedure, especially when you're speaking about a first time head coach and a first time general manager who really didn't have any type of front office experience in John Lynch at the time. Not only am I going to not give them a four or five year contract, I'm going to show my commitment to this duo by giving them a six year contract. And even after the first two years where they were well below 500, you didn't hear any rumblings out of Jed York. You didn't hear the type of nonsense that probably would happen with the Cleveland Browns and Jimmy Haslam's uh, organizational group about wanting to fire and get rid of this and bring in that and this, that, and the other. 
So this is also a situation where at the end of the San Francisco 49ers win this Super Bowl and they present the owner of the trophy, or the Lombardi trophy to Jet York, um, you're talking about redemption. You're talking about a reclamation that didn't that many people didn't see coming. That was it because nobody, if at the end of 2016, at the end of the 2016 season, when San Francisco was sitting there going 2-14, and 14, and I would have told you that, guess what, in less than five years, the San Francisco 49ers are going to be the best team of football and have the NFL championship, y'all would have said that you are crazy. That is Skip Bayless-type bullshit that you're, that you're spewing right there. What is your angle? Whose baby is that? I, I am not buying, buying that. So it will be interesting to, uh, to talk about that. And also, you know what? When we speak about this, look, I've said this before in another podcast leading up to this game. I hate, I hate to rehash old things, but, you know, we all have short memory spans. But I said, this is going to be, if the San Francisco 49ers win the Super Bowl, put Jimmy Garoppolo, this Jimmy Garoppolo, I don't know what Jimmy Garoppolo is going to turn into if he wins the Super Bowl three, four, five years down the road. But the Jimmy Garoppolo of 2020, if he wins the Super Bowl, you could put him in the same category as a Brad Johnson or as a Kerry, uh, not Kerry Collins, he didn't win a Super Bowl, uh, a Brad Johnson or a, who, who won the Super Bowl with a Trent Dilfer. Put him, put him in those categories in terms of, you don't need to have, San Francisco are proven, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that I don't need to have a franchise quarterback to win the Super Bowl? I don't need to have a Tom Brady. I don't need to have a Russell Wilson. I don't need to have a Drew Brees. I don't need to have a Ben Roethlisberger to win a championship. I can have someone like a Jimmy Garoppolo who I don't need to count on throwing the ball 40 to 45 times a game. I don't need to go five spread. I don't need to do West Coast fast pace, breakneck, this, that, and the other. I can actually play old school football and win. I can actually rely on a running game with a strong defensive front and win a championship? You mean I don't have to reach and stretch and ply and bend and break and broke and do everything and mortgage my future to try to get a quarterback who I can hope and pray turns into the next Tom Brady or or or, or Drew Brees or Russell Wilson or Lamar Jackson? I, I don't have to do that. I can actually go ahead and get, shall I say it? You want me to say it? All right, I'll say it. I can actually go out and get myself a game manager as a quarterback, is still win a Super Bowl, if I surround him with a strong enough uh, unit from the offensive, defensive, special team, and put together a really good coaching staff, uh, I can do that? Wow. Ain't that something? I don't need to do what the Arizona uh, Arizona Cardinals did and pick Kyler Allen at the number one, Kyler Murray, excuse me, at the number one pick and not pick Nick Bosa? Wow. That's, that's incredible. That's unbelievable. So, yeah, man, those are the storylines for those games. It is really going to be interesting. Everybody talks about Jimmy Garoppolo versus Patrick Mahomes. You know, it ain't Jimmy Garoppolo versus Patrick Mahomes, but Jimmy Garoppolo and Patrick Mahomes don't play defense. So this ain't basketball. They're not going to be covering each other. I'm looking at matchups like Tyreek Hill versus Richard Sherman. I'm taking a look at the offensive line for the defensive line for both teams to see who's going to control the line of scrimmage. Those are the things that I'm looking at. Those are the things that are going to be interesting. I'm going to see, I'm trying to see what exactly is the offensive philosophy going to be in a few hours between the Chiefs and the 49ers. Is this going to be a situation where, hey, you know what, Kansas City, because Bill Belichick would always be a 
think outside the box type of guy. If they think that they're going to do A, B, C, let's go ahead and have them do D, E, and F. Because something tells me they didn't spend too much time doing D, E, and F. They were mainly concentrating on A, B, and C. So when we do hit them with D, E, and F, they have no idea what to be, what's, how to defend that or deal with that because they've been so busy concentrating on our A, Bs, and Cs and not our 1, 2, 3s and D, Es and Fs. U, U, N, U, U, N, D, E, R, S, T, A, N, D, question mark. So it'll be interesting because it's like, obviously Patrick Mahomes on Kansas City for the offense, Patrick Mahomes, Andy Reid is the passing guy, always been a passing guy. Hell, there was a situation speaking about how much they love to pass and how much they should love to pass with Patrick Mahomes at their quarterback. There's a situation against Houston when they were down. He called, Andy Reid called 31 pass plays in and six running plays. Out of thirty seven out of thirty seven plays that were called in between the Chiefs being down twenty four nothing for them coming all the way back and winning, he called on thirty seven calls. Thirty one of them were passes, six of them were runs or were uh, rushes. And oh by the way, he they scored seven consecutive touchdowns. So it'll be interesting against the San Francisco defense if they're going to continue and maybe just try to maybe try to wear out the defensive front for the 49ers. Now I know that they rotate a lot. I know they're bringing D Ford and they got Nick Bosa and the Fords and all they got all these other guys coming in so to remain fresh. But I'm wondering if Andy Reid is going to use that same same approach, man. Put the ball in the hands of Patrick Mahomes, do some play action passes, try to get Tyreek Hill down the field. Richard Sherman is a very, very, still a very, very good elite cornerback in the game, but he is a guy who was coming off an Achilles injury a few seasons ago. I'm going to test his speed. I'm going to see how fast this guy is. If they're going to put him against Tyreek Hill, I'm going to see how much Richard Sherman has in terms of covering this guy. And I'm going to test him, and I'm going to test him early. I'm not going to rely too much on the running game if I'm Andy Reid. This is a game that's going to be strictly in the hands of my man, of my guy, um, my guy, Patrick Mahomes. It's going to be interesting because many people think it's like offense versus defense. You know, it's something that information that I saw that was interesting. Everyone talks about the prolific offense of the Kansas City Chiefs versus the incredible defense of the San Francisco 49ers. But if you check, and I know, you know, Statistics lie and liars use statistics, but this is an interesting thought. I, a point I saw: the San Francisco 49ers scored more points during the regular season than the Kansas City Chiefs, and on defense, the Kansas City Chiefs allowed less points than the San Francisco 49ers. Now you can break that down into all you want: the games, the opponents, Patrick Mahomes missing time, all of these things. Of the, the certain, you can break down all of that kind of stuff. But it's just interesting to see that, you know, that everybody thinks that we're going to be looking at the 2001 Baltimore Ravens versus the 1998 Minnesota Vikings. Well, that's not entirely true because Kansas City can stop some folks. You showed in the, the, the championship game in the AFC versus the Tennessee Titans against Derrick Henry. And also the fact that, you know what? San Francisco can actually score some points. In fact, they can score a lot of points. And they can beat you in many ways. They can beat you with Jimmy Garoppolo doing what he did against the New Orleans Saints in the Superdome where they won 48-46. Or they can win a game where he only throws eight passes and then out of 88 plays against Green Bay, they run the ball 71 times. And 
a match for over 200 yards. The play calling, the schematic, the schematic competition or the game within the game in terms of Kyle Shanahan's play calling versus Andy Reid's play calling is going to be extremely fascinating for me in terms of what type of, what are they going to be doing? What type of game plan are they going to establish? Are they going to move away from those game plans? Is is the, are the <clears throat> Kansas City Chiefs going to find themselves behind? Are they going to be the slow starting team again? If they are, everybody just goes on the assumption that, well, if they fall behind San Francisco, 10 nothing, 17 nothing, 21 nothing, that obviously the game's going to be over because of that, that great defense that the San Francisco 49ers have. But you also have to remember, San Francisco was near the bottom of the league in terms of red zone defense. So Kansas City has also shown that they can hit you from afar and they can hit you from inside the red zone. They can hit you from close. They can hit you from whenever in terms of scoring touchdowns. So this is a dynamic offense. How are they going to deal again with the complexities of dealing with the San Francisco running game? A lot of motion, a lot of misdirection, a lot of figuring out where your weaknesses weaknesses are on a certain play and then taking advantage of that. It's going to be interesting to see exactly what's going to be going down. Really interesting to see what's going down. So I know as I'm recording this, I'm recording this on a Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening as the sun is going down. I just watched Auburn beat Kentucky, and I'm going to be watching soon the return of Cole Anthony in North Carolina. Yes, that Cole Anthony, who would have been looking so good playing for Georgetown. Fuck! But uh, I digress. But uh, yeah, so those are the things. I, I don't know. I don't I do not do predictions in terms of who I think is going to win, what the score is going to be. Why is it that? Why is it that, sorry, why is it that everybody, when they pick these Super Bowls, they always talk about this game being close. You know, the game is the game is going to come down to a field goal. It's going to be an awesome game, this, that, and the other. You know, a lot of times they're right, but did anybody predict last uh, Super Bowl that uh, the Los Angeles Rams and the New England Patriots were going to stink out the joint like they did? No, I don't think so. I don't know what the score is going to be. I don't know who's going to win. I, I, that, that's the one great thing. That's, I've said this about sports over and over and over again. I have no idea. Now, you have some years where the the favorites to win the game, the championship or whatever, is pretty obvious. It's pretty self-explanatory. But on any given Sunday, man, anything can happen. And when you have two weeks off, I don't know what's going to happen. Who knows? And that's the wondrous, that's the fantasticness, fantasticness. Is that even a word? Whatever. Uh, that's just the, the beauty of sports. This isn't a Steven Seagal movie where you know that Steven Seagal is going to get his at the end. You know that he's going to come away with the, he's going to win at the end. This isn't a James Bond movie where you know that James Bond, whether it be Sean Connery or Sir Roger Moore or, or whoever, you know, you know at the end that 007 is going to live. You know, Doctor No ain't going to be killing no damn 007. You know, you know that 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 man whore 007 is going to be getting the bitch at the end of the at the end of the the, the movie. We all knew this. We're just trying to figure out why. Let's just follow the plot. Cool. In sports, it's not like that. We don't know. I have no idea who's going to win this football game, and I love it. I love it. That one makes me want to watch it even more because I have no idea who's going to win this football. Oh, shit. I'm watching now. Um, I'm watching Syracuse and Duke play, and they're doing their let's talk about Kobe Bryant thing. I'm going to be talking about Kobe Bryant next. 
And I am going to give my thoughts and feelings because, again, it's been almost a week now since he's done. So I can go ahead. It's going to be nothing malicious. I'm not sitting going to sit up there and talk about people who talk about Kobe Bryant are losers or anything like that. No, I, I'm not going to say that. But I will say this, man. It feels like I've been like at a eulogy for the last week. Everywhere I go, someone is coming up to me. And it feels like, it feels like that I can't turn on the television and watch a sporting event or do anything without having these announcers talk about the time that they met Kobe Bryant, like like they're supposed to be like wonderful people or something like that. And why is it that every time they talk about meeting Kobe Bryant or they want to speak about Kobe Bryant, Kobe Bryant perishing in a horrible accident last Sunday, I had an opportunity to talk to Kobe Bryant. And Kobe Bryant, like, I mean, I don't give a fuck about your relationship with Kobe Bryant. I don't care. Save it. Ryan Rucco and all these other folks in the NBA, when I've been trying to watch NBA basketball all week, trying to get some normalcy. And I'm sitting up there talking about, oh, Kobe Bryant was so great. I remember when I came to him and he did this to me and I was this and I was that and he did that. I don't, I don't give a fuck about your personal relationship with Kobe Bryant, whether it be business, whether it be personal. I don't care. I don't care. I don't need for you to eulogize how great Kobe Bryant is by telling me the, the time that you met Kobe Bryant. Like, all of a sudden now, that puts you in rarefied air of wonderful human beings in this world because I had a conversation. I had a moment in time where I met Kobe Bryant. Ha, ha, ha. Let me tell you Let me tell you about my experience with Kobe Bryant, basically so I can talk about my time with Kobe Bryant, but also hide it under the guise of he's such a great guy. Yeah, man, we get it. We understand it. Kobe Bryant was a great guy. I understand it. Kobe Bryant turned his life around. Fantastic. Awesome. Fa- wonderful. But guess what? We've been hearing that now for about a fucking week. We don't, I just, I gotta, we gotta let it go, man. We gotta let it go. Mourn, mourn privately. All of us mourn in different ways. And I'm trying to get over this. I'm trying to move past this. And I don't want to, I don't want my emotions to be brought back to the way I was feeling when I first heard the news in the first four or five or six hours after hearing the news and hearing about Gianna and hearing about all the others who died in a plane crash. I understand that this is a news story. I understand that it takes time. You need some time. And the story is, this is not a one day story. This is not a 48 hour story. I get it. I understand it. But damn, man, it's, I mean, I don't know. I'm going to save it. Let me save it. Let me save it. Let me save it for next segment. So yeah, getting back. I'm all over the place today, man. But getting back to the Super Bowl, man. Again, I don't know who's going to win. I don't care. All I want is for a great game. My Washington team isn't in it, so isn't in it. So I don't care. Washington's not in it, and Dallas is not in it. So one team, I would be begging them, please, please, please win. With Dallas, I'd be begging them, please, 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 please lose. Please, please, please don't go like I'm James Brown. But um, yeah, so I'm just going to sit back, relax, watch the Super Bowl. At my house, not at a bar, not at a watch party. I'm not going to have 25 motherfuckers in my house. All that kind of nonsense. I've got my chips. I've got my guacamole. I'm going to order some food. i got my sofa. I'm going to relax, watch the game, and then get ready for work the next day. Holla. So that's the deal that I'm talking about right there. But Super Bowl 54, Kansas City and San Francisco. Yeah, man. I'm looking forward to it. I really am looking forward to a very competitive game, and who knows who the victor is going to be.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. This is my putting it to bed. This is my personal eulogy. This is my, this is it. This is it for me when it comes to um, talking about Kobe Bryant. Not because I'm trying to be insensitive or not because I don't care or anything like that, but I'm just trying to move on. We've got to move on. Kobe Bryant, I didn't know Kobe Bryant. I didn't meet Kobe Bryant. I don't know anything about Kobe Bryant except what I hear from other people and the stories that you read and anything else. So like, I guess I would say 95% of the people who are giving him eulogies, I'm kind of like in the same boat, boat where I don't know Kobe Bryant. I didn't have a personal relationship with Kobe Bryant. So for me, the mourning and the loss wasn't as traumatic. And I don't know if I can say that I've quote unquote gotten over it, but I've moved on. I've, I've really moved on and I just want to just talk about sports and, and move on and be happy. And, you know, when someone like uh, Kobe Bryant passes and the story again is so horrible because it involves children and it involved other people. It's almost like, I don't know when exactly, what is it? When do you stop quote unquote gr- grieving or feeling sorry, and then go back to normal. You know what I mean? Because, look, if you're Vanessa, and if you're the kids, and if you're the family members, I get it. It's, this is going to last forever. This is an injury that's permanent, which is horrible, which is terrible. If you're someone like, someone who knew Kobe Bryant, if you're someone like a LeBron James, or if you're someone, uh, one of his old teammates, or you had a personal connection with Kobe Bryant, I understand it. Chris Paul, Kyrie Irving, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, I understand it. You've had relationships with this guy. You you knew this guy. Shaquille O'Neal, his family, you knew this guy. So I get it. It's going to take a while for you to mourn. It's going to take a while. This is not something where you can just kind of like, oh, well, that's the way it goes and move on. The game last night that I saw between the Portland Trailblazers and the Los Angeles Lakers, I give everybody who was, who was playing in that game, who was associated in that game. I give those guys a lot of credit, man, and a lot of respect for those guys. After the after the mourning that those guys did and then the tribute that those guys gave before the start of that game, for those guys to go out and play a basketball game, I, I heavens, Lord have mercy, I don't know how you guys did it, like LeBron and AD and, again, all these guys who had personal relationships. Might, they might not have been... They might not have been as strong as some are making them out to be. I'm not, you know, this is not something where these guys were hanging around Kobe every day and all of this nonsense. They had their lives, he had his lives, but, you know, there was a relationship there. How strong of a brotherhood, how strong of a bond, how strong of a friendship, we don't know. We don't know, but there was something there. And it was to the point where their bond, their friendship, if you're speaking about the relationship between Kobe and LeBron over the last couple of years, it was genuine the way LeBron felt about him. He did feel that he was a brother. He did feel that they were homies. They did feel that they were they were bonded in in some way, in a way to where, you know what, you don't need to be calling me every day. Or you know what, we every time we're in town, we don't need to be going out and hanging out every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon. You've got your life, I got my life. It's almost like a situation between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Larry Bird and Magic Johnson are extremely close. They'll tell you that they're close. Magic will tell you that they're close. He's one of his best friends. But those are guys to where they'll say, you know what, we could go without talking for a year. And we get back together and it's like we haven't and it's like we haven't missed a beat. You know, something like that. So when you're speaking about bonds, when you're speaking about brotherhood, 
when you're speaking about relationships, I mean, they all come in different definitions, definitions, you know, sizes and shapes and, and everything like that. So I give those guys a lot of credit who knew Kobe, who had relationships with Kobe, the ability to go out there and play a basketball game and do what they did. That was absolutely incredible. And for the NBA family, for the many players, the dozens, and I guess it's reaching, you could say just on a personal basis, maybe talking about what, maybe 35, 40, 45, 50 players that maybe Kobe had a relationship with. I'm not talking about, yeah, when he was, you know, he was my idol growing up and I met him in his last year in the NBA and that was about it. No, I'm talking about guys who Kobe actually had a relationship with, that he would talk to, that he would mentor, that the, the Jason Tatums who Kobe was mentoring, the Kyrie Irvings and such, and people who were on USA Basketball when Kobe was a member of, of, that, uh, of, of, of that team. It was, just, it was just amazing. Those guys, hey, man, you know, you, you grieve as long as you need to. There is no time frame. There is no timetable. And I'm quite sure one of those guys or some of those guys, a lot of those guys, that, 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 that personal injury will, will never go away. So it's like those guys, I get it. If a week, two weeks, a month later, they're still somewhat affected by what happened to their friend, to their mentor, to their strong acquaintance, Kobe Bryant. The fact that he's no longer around. A lot of these other folks, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't. <laughs> I just, again, when they're talking about, oh my goodness gracious, I had a relate. I don't. The one time I met Kobe Bryant, it's like I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't. Let me tell you about how great Kobe Bryant was. The one time that I met him, I don't want to hear it. I, I, I get the gist that I get it. Kobe Bryant. From those who knew him, Kobe Bryant was a great guy. You know, LeBron and other folks who had relationships with him, who had true, strong relationships with him. Hey, man, he wasn't perfect, but at the end, he was a really damn good human being, a really good guy. That's all I need to know. I don't need to hear reporters. I don't need to hear columnists. I don't need to hear people who covered him. I don't need to hear any of that stuff talking about their personal relationship that they had with Kobe Bryant. Stop. I just don't care. I don't I don't want to hear your... I just don't want to hear it. I, I just don't want to hear it. So... Um, there was an Instagram message from Vanessa Bryant. And again, hey, if she never wanted to say anything publicly, understood. I don't know. I don't know what she's going through. My God, I cannot imagine how she's handling this. I have no, I have no idea. I have no idea how she goes on. You got to. You got to. You got three kids. You got three kids. One's an infant. You got to move on. You got to, you got to try. You got to do it. You got to find strength. If you believe in the Lord, you believe in the higher power, you got to call for somebody to help you out. I mean, you can't do it alone. You can't do it on autopilot. Whoever you believe, whether it be Allah, Jesus, somebody, anybody, call them down and say, guide me, lead me because I can't do this alone. So for Vanessa Bryant to put out an Instagram message, I think it was very touching. I think it was wonderful for her to do that. I not would I would not have been angry at all if she just said, "Look, give me my privacy, thanks." But right now, I'm just trying to figure out what the hell am I going to do. I'm just trying to figure out what I'm going to do in terms of waking up the next morning. I have to. I don't know. I have to convince myself if I even want to wake up the next morning. There's going to be times like that. I have to make sure that my daughters are okay. I have an older daughter here. I don't know what's going to happen with her. I don't know exactly what turn she's going to take. I have no idea. I have to watch her closely. So I have to mourn and be a mother in a situation like this. And this is something that just happened. So for her to go ahead and do this, my my goodness, Vanessa, wow. Unbelievable. 
Unbelievable. Unbelievable strength. Unbelievable courage. You know, all these black women giving Vanessa Bryant slack and bullshit and shit about, oh, you know, marrying the black man and this, that, and the other, and can't believe that you took him back and all this kind of stuff. All these black women are just talking that bullshit. Shut the fuck up, you horrible, shallow skanks. Giving, uh, giving a hard time like that. Let's see you kind of go through something like this. But um, so the Instagram message from Vanessa Bryant, it read, my girls and I want to thank the millions of people who've shown support and love during this horrific time. Thank you for all the prayers. We definitely need them. We are completely devastated by the sudden loss of my adoring husband, Kobe, the amazing father of our children and my beautiful, sweet uh, Gianna a loving, thoughtful, and wonderful daughter, an amazing sister to Natalia, Bianca, and Capri. We are also devastated for the families who lost their loved ones on Sunday, and we share in their grief intimately. There aren't enough words to describe our pain right now. I take comfort in knowing that Kobe and Gigi both knew that they were so deeply loved. We were so incredibly blessed to have them in our lives. I wish they were here with us forever. They were our beautiful blessings taken from us too soon. I'm not sure what our lives hold beyond today, and it's impossible to imagine life without them. But we wake up each day trying to keep pushing because Kobe and our baby girl Gigi are shining on us to light the way. Our love for them is endless, and that's to say immeasurable. I just wish I could hug them, kiss them, and bless them. Have them here with us forever, forever. Thank you for sharing your joy, your grief, and your support with us. We ask that you grant us the respect and privacy we need to navigate this new reality. To honor our team Mamba family, the Mamba Sports Foundation has set up a Mamba on 3 fund to help support the other families affected by this tragedy. To donate, please go to mambaon3.org. To further Kobe and Gianna's legacy in youth sports, please visit mambasportsfoundation.org. Thank you so much for lifting us up in your prayers and for loving Gigi, Kobe, Natalia, Bianca, Capri, and me. Hashtag Mamba. Hashtag Mamba. Mamba Sita. Hashtag dad's, Girl's Dad. Hashtag Daddy's Girl. Hashtag Family. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, shit, man. That's, that's rough. That is rough. I'm not going to go there. Emotionally, I don't want to go there. Emotionally, again, I'm trying. That's one of the reasons why I'm, when I've turned on a basketball game or I turned on a sporting event and I wanted to just get away from it and they just started talking about Kobe and this, that, and the other, it was just like, no, fuck no, fuck no. I don't want to go back there. I'm trying to move on. I don't want to go back there. Again, when is it okay for you to have that attitude? Are you insensitive if you're like, look, 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 it's Thursday, okay? This happens Sunday. I got to move on. No more Kobe stories, please. No more, no more tears. No more Kobe was the greatest. No more reliving the time I met Kobe. No more examples of what a great guy Kobe is. At least give me, give me at least, a, give me a four weeks. Give me four to six weeks. Give me until the end of the. Give me until the end of the NCAA tournament, and then if you want to mention the Kobe again, I'll be more equipped, emotionally ready to handle it. But again, it's like I'm, I'm trying to move on. I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to do this, that, and the other. And it's like I've got some announcer on ESPN who knew Kobe for 10 minutes is talking about what a wonderful person he is. i got L. Duncan talking about the wonderful time that she met Kobe Bryant and 
Um, Kobe was talking about he wishes that he could have five more daughters because he loves daughters and what a wonderful human being and what an awesome human being he was. All right, can we? It's like, I don't know, man. It's just, on some instances, it's almost like you're reaching. It's almost like you're reaching sometimes. Look, Kobe knew how, Kobe, in L, at least in L.A., Kobe knew how wonderful and loved that he was. There was no doubt. And thank God for that. And the Gigi, I don't know. The girl was only 13 years old. But the Bryant family and Kobe, they knew how much they were loved in L.A. They knew it. And the love was reciprocated right back to them. I mean, Kobe, early on, Oh, man, I forgot. This is even when Kobe was, uh, wasn't was as loved, as beloved as he was right now. I remember there was a time where it's kind of like, hey, man, could you walk down the streets of L.A.? And Kobe's like, hell no. <laughs> Not because fearing for his life or anything like that, but because, I mean, he was so popular. He couldn't get from point A to point B in L.A. walking down the streets. He's too popular. He's too much, he's too loved down there. He knew that. He absolutely knew that. When he retired at the end of his career, he knew that. There was enough, thankfully, thankfully, there was enough tributes and everybody telling him how much he he was loved and how much they loved him and everything like that. Thank goodness that when he died, that he wasn't, there was no question in Kobe's mind. In the final moments of his life, he wasn't sitting there thinking about himself like, yeah, I wonder if these folks in LA are going to love me. But it's almost like he knew, whatever you want to believe, what I believe, he's looking up from from above, talking about, yeah, man, I appreciate it, and this is wonderful, but I, I knew how much y'all loved him. Don't worry about it. Y'all don't need to y'all don't need to embellish or go overboard. I know how much I loved him. Like I said, I love y'all right back. Now, let me go ahead. I'm going to, you know, I got to make sure that Vanessa is all right, and I'm going to get into another argument with Wilt Chamberlain talking about, he was the greatest basketball player who ever lived. And yes, he did sleep with 10,000 women. So once I'm done taking care of Vanessa and making sure that she's all right for the night, I got to go ahead and argue again with Wilt Chamberlain and, and drop some buckets on his big ass because he's up there talking shit to me, talking about what I could do to him. Well, guess what? I'm in heaven now and we're going to be there forever. So while Gigi is up there watching, I am going to go up here and school Wilt Chamberlain on what it's like with uh, and um, play some pickup ball with Wilt Chamberlain and Maurice Stokes and some of the other great players who have played in the game. George Mikan and all them other great folks. So there's going to be a hell of a pickup game later on in heaven that I'm going to be playing with. But yeah, I knew how much y'all loved me. Don't worry about it. But the tributes continue to pour in for Kobe. LeBron James, I thought he was wonderful. I thought he was very wonderful in his speech or in talking to the Laker fans last night. He said on Instagram, he said, I'm not ready, but here I go. Man, I'm sitting here trying to write something for this post. But every time I try, I begin crying again, just thinking about you, niece Gigi, and the friendship, bond, brotherhood we had. I literally just heard your voice Sunday morning before I left Philly to head back to L.A. Again, it goes back to what he said, friendship, bond, brotherhood that we had. Different definitions of what a friendship, bond, brotherhood are, but... I think genuinely LeBron and I think Kobe thought that their friendship, that they had a friendship, a bond, a brotherhood, that it, it matured from competition. You're my adversary. You're my enemy on the basketball court to where both grew from being boys to men and realizing what life is all about and being fathers and being husbands and seeing the end of a basketball career and seeing the slippage in terms of, you know what, you're not the man anymore, Kobe. I mean, when LeBron finally got there, I think when they're 
relationship really began to blossom was when Kobe was allowed to put his guard down a little bit and just say, you know what, man, I, you, you the man, you the man. Magic did it with Jordan. Jordan did it with Kobe. I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm passing the torch on to you. You the man now. This is no longer my league. I'm not, now I'm not the, I'm not the new sensation. I'm not the fresh guy. I'm not the face of the league anymore. Now I'm the quote unquote elder statesman. So now I'm going to do what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm going to do what Magic Johnson. I'm going to do what Michael Jordan. I'm going to do what all of the great NBA legendary players who were at one time or another the the face, the it, the thing, the end all, the be all, the HNIC uh, uh, are going to do. I'm going to pass that torch and I'm going to move the game forward and I'm going to put the game in a better place. And I think when that happened, when he finally came to the acceptance that LeBron was the better basketball player, that he was the face of the league, that he was now the guy that was going to be that superstar, and he was no longer that guy, or at least that guy at the top of the mountain, not the leader of that. That's when I think the friendship and the bond and the brotherhood came stronger and actually started to grow and formulate. So continuing on with LeBron's statement from his Instagram account, didn't think for one bit in a million years that that would be the last conversation that we'd have, WTF. I'm heartbroken and devastated, my brother. Man, I love you, big bro. My heart goes to Vanessa and the kids. I promise you I'll continue your legacy, man. You mean so much to us all here, especially hashtag Laker Nation. And it's my responsibility to put this shit on my back and keep it going. Please give me the strength from the heavens above and watch over me. I got us here. There's so much more I want to say, but... Just can't right now because I can't get through it. Until we meet again, my brother. Mamba for life. Hashtag GG for life. You know what I was thinking about? This whole... Well, I was thinking about this speech or this Instagram post. And when I was listening to LeBron speak before the game started last night between them and Portland. You know what I was thinking about? You remember this summer... The, some of the criticism that LeBron received when he was participating in the layup lines with his son during the summer league game. I think it was over here at Bishop Gorman out here in Vegas and Bronny was out here playing and LeBron was up there dunking with his son during the layup lines and people were speaking about his genuine over-exuberance while watching him and his teammates play. He was running up and giving fist pumps and you know chest bumps to the players and everything like that. Remember when that remember when that coon, when that Sambo, that joke of a of a of a black man, Jason Whitlock and others, who benefit from criticizing LeBron because there is a there is a, a decent there is a decent number of idiots, of ignorant people out there that for whatever reason, because LeBron didn't go to a certain team, instead he went to Miami because he had the goal to string along NBA teams because they're still bent over backwards and still bent out of shape about his decision, that that decision, or because of the Jordan lovers, the Jordan sheep who, who bristle anytime anybody mentions anything about LeBron being compared to Jordan and they need to desecrate or they need to throw negativity on him, whatever the ignorant, stupid, pathetic reasons that these people have towards their hatred of LeBron, their hatred of LeBron. You know, people like Whitlock and a couple of fools from Barstool came out and were sitting there talking about, you know, 
When LeBron was doing this with Bronny in the layup lines, I mean, this is a joke. This is a sham. It's all about him. It's always going to be the spotlight's going to be on LeBron. Why don't you just stay out of the spotlight for one second and let the spotlight go to your son? Why are you trying to steal? Why are you that so starved for attention that you have to do all these things that you have to be acting like a fool when your son is out there on the court playing? How dare you? You're terrible. You're horrible. Remember that nonsense? I remember doing a podcast about that when Whitlock was sitting there talking about well, you just need to sit there being very docile and watch your son play. When LeBron was giving that speech, when LeBron, when I read that Instagram message from LeBron, that's the first thing I thought about. Fuck you, you fucking ignorant pieces of shit when it comes to that. You know the reason why? That's the, you know what happened to Kobe and Gigi? That's the fucking reason why you go ahead and you, you you do this stuff with your son. That's the reason why, Jason, that's the reason why those, I forgot the guy's name on, on Barstool, I don't listen to them, to them, but that's the reason why you do that kind of stuff. It wasn't about, oh my God, my son is getting the attention, I've got to steal it away from him. No, it's about memories, man. It's about a situation where, guess what? No, none of us are promised tomorrow. And guess what? None of us are promised in that moment. Hey, man, LeBron and, Bar- and, and Bronny, that moment, they're never going to get back. LeBron is only going to be that age one. That's going to be one moment in time. You can't rewind that shit back. You know what I'm saying? When, Le- when, when LeBron Jr. Bronny is 17, 18 years old, you can't get on a time machine like Mr. Peabody and go back in time to the year 2019 and relive that, that moment again. You can't do that. So you just enjoy it, man. You just enjoy watching your son play basketball like that. You get excited because this is a one-time deal. One time. You only get this one time in life. You don't rewind it. And who knows, man? God damn. We don't know if LeBron's going to be living another 10 years. We don't know if Bronny's going to be living another 10 minutes. We don't know. No one's promised to live another 15 seconds, as I keep mentioning to people, as I keep mentioning on this podcast. No one is guaranteed to take another breath in life. If you want to say that's not my is that our decision, there's a higher being up there that decides when it's time for us to go home to our Heavenly Father or whatever. Hey man, that's when it goes. So no one is no one is promised tomorrow. No one is promised. And it, and it came home so distinctly with the passing of Kobe Bryant. So when I saw LeBron James out there doing that stuff with his son, it's like, yeah, man, he knows this is it. This is the only time in this period of his life that he's going to get the opportunity to do this. So he might as well enjoy it. And as long as it's genuine, which I believed it was, I wasn't there. I I didn't ask the guy, but I believe LeBron when he says that it was genuine, that it was, and I believe Bronny and I believe his teammates were it was kind of like that was awesome to have LeBron James in the layup line doing a thing that was fantastic once in a lifetime good lord if the lord grants me to live another 40 years that, that story that I've got another 50 60 years that story that I've got that's a lifetime baby I mean you know that's a lifetime right there that I can keep that inside of me that I can keep that next to my heart that I can keep that in my mind that's awesome that's awesome so again that's what I thought about when I read that, when I read that uh, Instagram message from LeBron and when I heard him speak last night before the game between the Lakers and Portland. NHL legend Wayne Gretzky, he tweeted, Janet and I, Janet, his wife, and I have no words to describe our shock 
and sadness on the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant today. Praying for him and his family, former President Bill Clinton said, I'm deeply saddened by the tragic loss of Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna and all who died in today's accident. Kobe lived a very large life in a short, very short time. My prayers are with Vanessa, Natalia, Bianca, Capri, and all those who lost loved ones today. NBA players like Lonzo Ball, Clippers, Montrez Harold, the Atlanta Hawks, Trey Young. They all paid their tribute in honor to Kobe Bryant. Others who offered their condolences and prayers were such luminaries in their sports and fields such as Tiger Woods and Tom Brady, Mike Tyson, Michael Jordan called Kobe his little brother, Brett Favre, Shaq, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholson, Luke Tang Klang, Taylor Swift. I um, can go on and on and on about those who went to social media to give their thoughts and their prayers and their condolences. And I say this again, about 90% of those prayers and condolences given by these public figures, they're more reactionary to the tragic, to the tragedy, I think, of the event, more so than their personal relationship that they had with Kobe Bryant. Because I'm quite sure a lot of them either didn't have a relationship with Kobe Bryant, never met Kobe Bryant, in passing with Kobe Bryant. But again, it was something to where, and I say it again, my thoughts and prayers and condolences to the Bryant family, to all of those who lost their lives, they're no different, they're no less powerful, they're no less important than any of these quote-unquote public figures who probably either barely knew Kobe Bryant, didn't have any type of relationship with Kobe Bryant, maybe didn't even meet Kobe Bryant. Drew Brees is at the All-Star Game, the Pro Bowl, and they're asking him about Kobe Bryant. He's like, well, I met him once. I mean, he's great, the mama mentality, this, that, and the other. And it's almost like Drew Brees is like, look, man, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what to tell you. I mean, sucks. It's horrible. It's tragic. Heartbreaking. All of those things. But there's nothing that I can add to that that's going to elevate who Kobe Bryant was. Kobe Bryant, we all know who he was. We all, you know, for the most part, after these consistent eulogy from those who knew him, those who knew him intimately, not reporters, not people who covered him, not people who had a working relationship with him. I'm talking about people who knew him intimately. We knew that what a wonderful person he was He he was growing into. Because we all grow. 41 years old. We're still growing. We're still learning. I'm 50 years old, and I'm still learning, and I'm still growing, and I still make mistakes, and I'm still trying to get there and being the person that I want to be. So, yeah, man, I, you know, I, again, it, it gets back to the point, as I said before. Man, when do we... Uh, when do we finally say, look, I got to move on? I got to move on. You know when I moved on? You know who started the healing process for me? You know who really got me going in terms of saying, all right, I got to, you know, the fog has been lifted. Now it's back to, to normalcy. Now let me go ahead and start living my life the regular way that I've been living it before this unspeakable tragedy happened. You know who that was? I'll tell you who it is.
I was mentioning before about, you know, who who helped me a lot in terms of getting my way back to, I had to take a little music break, I'm sorry. People were asking me, or I, I was thinking to myself, man, you know, who's going to kind of get me out of this funk? Out of, you know, after reading the tweets and other public figures who express, express their condolences, uh, Bill Russell tweeted, Barack Obama, still my president, tweeted, Tennis player Nick Kyrgios wore Kobe Bryant's gold number eight jersey, wiping tears as he walked away, as he walked into the Australian Open to play Rafa Nadal on Monday. You know what's interesting about that? Kyrgios, as a professional athlete, is the complete opposite of Kobe Bryant. Now, remember reading and listening to Kyrgios, basketball is his main sport. And his favorite players were Kobe Bryant and Kevin Garnett. And the thing was is that as a professional athlete, the 18 to 28 year old Kobe Bryant, he would have had complete disdain for Nick Kyrgios, if you think about it. Because Kobe, that mama mentality, you work hard, you, you dedicate, sacrifice, all of these things. You work harder than everybody else. It's all about hard work, sacrifice. Nick Kyrgios as a tennis player is the complete opposite of what Kobe Bryant was as a basketball player in terms of his dedication to his craft and to his art. It's interesting when I saw that, because that's the first thing I thought about, is that, oh, man, you know, Kobe this, Kobe that. I'm, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not saying that Nick Kyrgios was a genuine. I'm not saying that at all. I truly believe that, yeah, the death of Kobe Bryant affected Nick Kyrgios. And those tears were real, and those feelings and emotions were real, no doubt. But I was also just thinking to myself that, damn, man, I mean, when Kobe was cold-blooded, and when Kobe was all about, look, man, I'm just trying to win. I'm just trying to be the best basketball player I can. And nothing, ain't nothing is going to stop me from reaching that goal of being a winner, of being better than Michael Jordan, of being the greatest basketball player of all time. He would have no understanding. He would have no idea. He would look at Nick Kyrgios and just think of him as a guy from another planet. Because he would sit there and be like, how can a guy with so much talent, how could a guy who's so gifted and talented in the sport that he's playing, a guy who has the potential to be a great tennis player, not just a great tennis player, one of the greatest tennis players of his day, if not the greatest, facing the challenge of playing Federer and Nadal and Djokovic and these guys. How can a guy with that much talent being presented with a challenge like that, how could he take his job as talent so flippantly? How could he disrespect his talent? How could he disrespect the maker who gave him the ability to play tennis at such a high level, being one of those guys who could go down as one of the greatest? How could he cheat himself, cheat his maker, cheat everything about the game, cheat the grace that came before him? How could he do that? That would be, that's mama mentality. So I'm, as I mentioned before, I'm thinking a 28-year-old Kobe Bryant would have been like, man, take my jersey off, man. We ain't got nothing in common. I don't like you. I have no respect for you. Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. That's the 18 to 28-year-old Kobe Bryant. That's the thing I thought about when I saw Nick Kyrgios wear that jersey. And again, it's just not to say that Nick Kyrgios was grandstanding or anything like that. It's, I, I believe that those tears and those emotions were real. 100% raw emotional. I believe that 500%. But again, the... <clears throat> the uh, 18 to 28 year old Kobe Bryant would have been like, man, get the fuck out of my face with that bullshit. So interesting. Here's the one thing, because I mentioned before, I want to get to it. I know I'm supposed to sell out. The, I know I'm supposed to, to tell the tea. So here we go. 
Monday when I went to work, I'm a substitute teacher for the Clark County School District. Hey man, it's a living. What are you looking at me for? When I went into class and I was dealing with it was a freshman and sophomore class of uh, of kids, and I walked in there, and the kids were like, "Hey, you know this that, and the other, this that, and the other." I mean, they were just you know they were being fourteen year olds. They were being fourteen and fifteen year olds. You know what I mean? I mean, they were just doing their thing and just that and the other and living life and living their own thing and being all about them and this, that and the other. And I remember a couple of them, and I go up to the school quite a bit, the school I was at. So the kids have, the kids know who I am. So a couple of them came up and were like, hey, Mr. Wallace, did you hear about Kobe Bryant, man? Oh, it sucks, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So anyway, like, and they just went right back to being themselves, man. They just went right back into their own world, which all revolved around them. They're 14 and 15 year olds, okay? I mean, I'm not saying that as a, as a bad thing. I mean, they're 14 and 15 year olds. You know, when they're freshmen and, when they're freshmen and sophomores in high school, yeah, it's all about you. I mean, you're teenagers. Give me a break. So it was just like, I just sat there and I just looked and I just observed. And I was like, wow, man, you know, ain't that something? We think that the entire world is, there's just this, this there's just this cloud this 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 cloud above society that everyone is walking like Linus, you know, like the the dark cloud following Linus wherever he goes, and everybody has their head down, and everybody is upset, and everybody is, and it's like, wow, no, no, they're not, no, they're not, and these kids knew that Kobe Bryant died, they knew who Kobe Bryant was, but Kobe Bryant wasn't theirs. Kobe, these kids are 14, 15 years old. Kobe Bryant was 41. Kids had no real connection to Kobe Bryant. Their parents might have. And they might have been seeing how their parents were reacting to be like, wow, that's man, something else. But it was like, these kids were just like, Kobe Bryant died. It sucks. It's terrible. But time for me to go back to being all about me. And it just kind of woke me up just a little bit because it's like, yeah, you know, Whatever happens, life is going to move on. And we'll get over this. And we'll be better for this. And this is not something that's new. This is not something that that should shake our society to the core. We'll mourn for those who need to know who, who need to mourn more. They will. And then we'll move on. And I just thought about where should we put Kobe in the pantheon? He's an immortal. When you die the way that he did and you die the way at the age that he did, he's immortal because we never saw old, we never saw Kobe get old or weak or frail or actually be alive. And I hate to say this, but there was going to come a time and place and it's going to happen to everybody. If you live long enough where people aren't going to really know or care who you are, they might hear about you. But there's going to come a time when you're a public figure, be it an athlete or an entertainer or a musician to where no one, a generation or two or three, depending on how long you live, they're not going to care about you. And everyone's talking about, oh man, Kobe was going to be around. I thought Kobe was going to be around until he was 70 and he was 80. I'm telling you right now, if Kobe lived another 40 years, in the year 2060, the people who were going to be running this country the people who are going to be working, the people who are going to be going to school, 
but people who are just starting out in their lives with jobs and families and other things, they're not, they weren't going to know or care who Kobe Bryant was if he was still living. And even now in death, while I think it gives his legacy and his immortality a much longer, much longer longevity, a much, much longer expiration date, there's going to come a time where this is just going to be another footnote that we're going to, a generation of people, and not just a generation of kids, but a generation of people who are going to be running this country, who are going to be building this country, moving this country along, are going to take a look at the story and be like, yeah, that sucks, whatever, move it on. And they're not going to give it two thoughts about it. And I know right now, for those who grew up idolizing Kobe, for those who got into sports because of Kobe, for those who consider Kobe their guy, that right now it's like, nah, I don't, uh-uh, nah, uh-uh, nah. I'm guaranteeing you right now, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, within five years, five years, this pain that we'll be feeling for Kobe Bryant will subside immensely. It'll be something to where it's like, we'll be able to laugh, we'll be able to smile, we'll be able to, you know, we'll be able to argue, we'll be able to talk about Kobe's legacy and not be worried about stepping on eggshells. And hoping that am I being too insensitive and all that kind of stuff. It'll it'll flow back to its natural position in this world. But dying at forty one again, it solidifies his immortality. It increases his legend and his legacy. When I think about it, and I take a look at the public figures or the athletes, and I'm thinking to myself, where does Kobe fit into this? Because each story has its different impact and its different meaning on different generations and different people. And if you think about it, Kobe is the first guy. Let's let's just, just think about the top of my head. Kobe is the first guy who I think in terms of a generation, that he was a generational leader in terms of, you know, people who grew up playing sports, watching sports, whatever, where it was like, yeah, growing up, Kobe was my guy. Just like when I was growing up, Magic Johnson was my guy. Bernard King was my guy. Warren Moon, Kirby Puckett, Ricky Henderson, Yvonne Lendl's, Lendl, those were my guys. But because I love basketball so much, Magic Johnson was my guy. Or for other folks, Larry Bird was my guy. And then you move on to uh, Michael Jordan, you know, influencing a generation of people. Like Michael Jordan was my guy. And even before... Magic and Larry Bird for a generation before me. Like, for instance, Julius Irving was their guy. You know, for, Kobe is the first that's my guy to die. You know what I'm saying? Magic Johnson is still around. Larry Bird is still around. Bill Russell is still around. Michael Jordan is still around. LeBron James is still around. So everybody's generational hero or idol or that's my guy, they're still around. I mean, Let's take, for instance, if you could even remember the impact that Magic Johnson had when he announced that he had HIV in 1991. Let's just say, for instance, and thank God this didn't happen. Let's just say, for instance, that what everybody thought when he announced November 7th, 1991, whatever, what, what we were all thinking, the majority of people were thinking, what happens if that actually came true? That... In 1993, Magic would have died of AIDS. And we would have seen Magic, 
the stereotypical way that we looked at AIDS patients during those days with the leeches and and their, their, their skeletal remains and all of these all of these horrific, disgusting images of people in their last stages of dying from that disease. The stereotypical way that that the people were being portrayed at that time. The impact that Magic Johnson would have had was enormous. Or let's just say that something happened to Magic that November 7, 1991. The impact that those guys would have had, uh, that Magic had on society when he announced that he had HIV. And the way that, if you remember, the NBA players were crying and they were heartbroken because we all thought that this guy was dying, that he was going to die that he was going to die a slow, painful, pathetic death. So I remember that night, <clears throat> I remember that night when Magic announced that he had AIDS. I mean, it was just like, like some, it, it truly was, even though he was living, it was like he died. And when he gave that press conference, it wasn't like, yeah, when he was talking about, I'm going to beat it, I'm going to live on this, that, and the other. It wasn't a situation where people were sitting there going, yeah, yeah, Magic, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. No, it was just a matter of, oh, God, just, uh, just like, uh, that poor, brave man. Love the face that he's putting on the situation, but he's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to die. So it's like, you know, different things, different things. So I'm thinking to myself, I mean, damn, just imagine if this tragedy happened to Michael Jordan. Thank God it didn't. But just think if something like that happened to him. Michael Jordan, two or three years after he finished playing basketball. You know, it's just, Kobe is the first guy as far as those guys to die. And it's like, shit, man, I thought, I thought Kobe was going to be around forever. Not because we thought he was instructable or this, that, and the other. It's because, man, it's just it kind of reminds you that at 41 years old, I mean, he's kind of like in my age group. Yeah, I can die at that age too. <laughs> I mean, just reminded that, that the guy that I grew up idolizing and doing all this stuff, he died at the, around the same age that I am right now. So shit, I just got reminded that, you know what? I No one is promised tomorrow. I'm not promised tomorrow. I'm not, uh, there is no guarantee that I'm going to live for the next day. So I'm just thinking that, man, where does Kobe fit? Where does Kobe fit in terms of his legacy and legend? As far as athletes are concerned, I put him with like Roberto Clemente or a Walter Payton or a Lou Gehrig, Flores Griffith Joyner, Rocky Marciano, Nuke Rotney, Dale Earnhardt, Pat Tillman, Reggie White, Thurman Munson, Vince Lombardi. You know, I think I think Kobe belongs in that category. And the category I'm talking about is kind of like where their deaths took us like it, it, it floored us in terms of it, it took us off guard. We didn't know. Roberto Clemente was 38 years old when he died in a plane crash on New Year's Eve, 1972. It crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of uh, Puerto Rico immediately after takeoff due to engine failure. Uh, engine fail failure. He was just going over to Nicaragua to to give supplies to earthquake victims. He was still going to be playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates. No one thought that he was going to die in a doggone plane crash. I mean, a few days after the crash, the body of the pilot and part of the fuselage of the plane were found, but the bodies of Clemente and three others who were on the four-engine plane were never recovered. So to this day, he's, I mean, adding to the legacy, adding to Clemente's overall aura, he saved, he died, he perished trying to save others 
and the fact they never found his body. Clemente's teammate and close friend Manny uh, Sanguin was the only member of the Padre, of the uh, Pirates not to attend Roberto's memorial, memorial service. You know why? Because he chose instead to dive into the waters where Clemente's plane had crashed in an effort to find his teammate. So he was just, I mean, that, that's, how, that's how much it impacted him. You're talking about Nuke Rodney, the head coach of Notre Dame. He was killed in a plane crash March, March 31st, 1931. He was en route to participate in the production of the film The Spirit of Notre Dame. The story about the impact of his death, it was a really good story written by Ivan Mazel for ESPN.com April 3rd. And they talked about the impact, the national impact that the death of Nuke Rotney had on the country. Not just on college football, not just on college football players, not just on those who competed in and, and, and played for Rockney, not just those who covered him, not just the, the, the writers, because back in the day there was no television, not not the broadcasters or the radio people, not just that, how the death of Nuke Rockney shook the entire nation. CBS Radio broadcasted the funeral. The tragedy was such of, of importance that it changed the way planes were built and led to new regulations in the way that the government investigated and reported the findings of transportation disasters. The way planes were being built were changed because of what happened to Newt Rockney. Dale Earnhardt, for a section, for a certain section of this country, Dale Earnhardt was their people's Kobe Bryant. I mean, for a lot of those people, Dale Earnhardt was Kobe Bryant, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, all rolled into one for a certain portion, a certain section of this country. He died due, due to injuries sustained in the collision during the final lap of the 2001 Daytona 500. No one thought that he, when this race started that they were going to be watching the end of the life of Dale Earnhardt. So in the aftermath, fans began honoring Earnhardt by holding three fingers aloof on the, on the third, rap, uh, third lap of every race. A black screen and number three in the beginning of the NASCAR Thunder 2002 series before the EA Sports logo. Television coverage of NASCAR and Fox and NASCAR on NBC went silent for each third lap from Rockingham to the following year's race there were to honor Earnhardt, unless there was some type of on-the-track incident that brought out the caution flag on the third lap. So his... I put Kobe in one of those situations. We knew how great Dale Earnhardt was when he died. We knew how great Roberto Clemente was when he died. We knew how great Nuke Rockney was when he died. We knew how great Reggie White when he died in his sleep because of sleep apnea. We knew how great he was. We knew Pat Tillman. We knew how great of a human being they were. So it was jarring. It was unbelievable. It was just... But we. But the great thing about Kobe was... His legacy was set. His legacy was there. And we could talk about moving on. He could have done this. He could have done that. And he was writing this. And he was writing that. And he was doing all these types of things with WNBA basketball and women's basketball and all these types of things. There was nothing that Kobe was going to do that was going to give him the amount of fame and admiration and notoriety that he got playing basketball for the Los Angeles Lakers. There was nothing. Nothing that he could accomplish. Nothing that he was going to accomplish that was going to equate what he did as a basketball player for the Los Angeles Lakers. His obituary reads, basketball player. 
first and foremost. And the other accomplishments come second, including being a father, including being a great husband. Now, whether you want to think that's right or wrong, that's for another debate, that's for another argument. But in the pantheon of what life is all about, that's what we're talking about in terms of the list. Uh, what made Kobe Bryant so, what, what brought out these types of emotions worldwide with Kobe Bryant. It was his ability to play basketball. We got that. We saw the entire movie. We saw the ending. We know what happened. Just like with Clemente. Just like with Walter Payton. There was no what ifs with Walter Payton. We knew how great of a football player Walter Payton was. The football playing Walter Payton, the guy that everybody knew. That, that's what made Walter Payton Walter Payton. Whether he went ahead and was able to purchase the Los Angeles Rams and become a part-time owner, no matter what else he was going to do in life, no matter how great of an accomplishment he was going to do after he finished playing football, he would have always been known as a football player to a generation that was going to love him the most. So we got that from Walter Payton. We got everything that he had. So when he died, it was tragic. It was horrible. It was sad. It was disappointing. It was all of those things. It was emotional, all of those things, especially for those in Detroit, especially for those who were associated with Chicago Bears because Walter Payton was an awesome human being. He was a great human being. But we got, we, 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 we saw it. We knew it. We knew it in terms of how great he was. We weren't basing his legacy. We weren't basing his adulation. We weren't basing our tears and our, and our, and our depression and everything based on what if. What if he, this wouldn't have happened to Walter Payton? Could he have done that? Could he have done this? Could he have made an impact on the game? What would he have become? We knew that. We found that out. Thank Jesus. So just like Kobe. Kobe, we 20 years we got of Kobe Bryant. And he gave us everything. There was nothing left when he fought, scored that final 60 points. He had 60 points left in him in his career. And he gave, it, and he gave all of it to us that one night in Utah. So it's like when he retired, it was cool. There wasn't any, there was no sadness. It was joyous. It was a celebration. It was, there we go. And we had the opportunity to tell Kobe how much we loved him. There was an opportunity to, to honor Kobe before he died. So Kobe knew the love that people had for him. So that's why I say when I put Kobe into a category such as Clemente or Rocky Marciano, who died in a plane crash, at the age of, I believe, 45 or 49 or something like that. We knew Rocky Marciano, 50 and 0. We knew that he wasn't going to come back after thinking about coming back to fight the winner of Ingemar Johansson and Floyd Patterson. He saw Floyd Patterson when he did he, and he was like, no, I'm good. So we knew we got everything in terms of Rocky Marciano and Nuke Rotney and Reggie White and Florence Griffin Joyner. So we knew the end of the story concerning those type of things. You know, I feel terrible and I feel horrible for the athletes who were dying before their time. We're talking about Kobe Bryant dying before their time. Kobe Bryant didn't die before his time. There's no way Kobe Bryant died before his time. You know people who died before their time? If you really think about it, I'm thinking about athletes such as Len Bias or Ben Wilson or Joe Delaney, Lyman Bostock, Salvador Sanchez, Hank Gathers, Jerome Brown, Ernie Davis. When you're thinking about celebrities and legends who died before their time, I'm thinking about Otis Redding or James Dean or Big L, Lamont Coleman or Selena or the Notorious B.I.G. or Tupac or Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, Bruce Lee, Aaliyah. Those are the type of people where it's like those. I mean, I don't want to 
I mean, we should never sit up there and try to equate or we should say, well, this person's death is worse than that person's death. We should never do that. But just in terms of sorrow and sadness and fuck, damn it, God, you know, all of those type of things, when you think about those emotions, those deaths hit me harder than, say, for instance, Roberto's or Kobe's or Vince Lombardi's or anything like that. Those are the ones that hit me a little bit harder because those people never had the opportunity to go ahead and do that. You know, Sam Cooke, Princess Diana, Michael Jackson, those people, or Sam Cooke, Princess, those people never had that opportunity. Len Bias was supposed to be, Len Bias in college was better than Michael Jordan. Yes, he was. Len Bias was my hero. Len Bias was my everything. For a generation that you see in Los Angeles right now that are tearing, that are giving tribute outside the Staples Centers who are taking it hard and everything, that was my, Len Bias was that guy to me. When Len, June 19th, it still sucks. It still sucks to this day. I'm a 50-year-old man. That damn thing happened, what, 30-something, 40-something years ago? Shit still sucks. I'm a grown man. I've had ups and downs and lefts and rights and twists and turns and positives and negatives in my life. But June 19th will always be that goddamn, ain't that a bitch? Because that's the day we lost my hero, my true hero, my, wow, Len Bias. And it was because we he was going to be that guy. He was going to represent Maryland, man. He was going to represent the Maryland area, the area where I grew up. When Len Bias died, we lost Lenny. It was like we lost a brother. We lost someone who was going to represent us and do it well. Fuck you, Brian Tribble, you son of a bitch. But when Lenny, when Lenny Bias died, it was like he was just drafted by the Boston Celtics. He was, I mean, how was I going to deal with the fact that I had to become a Boston Celtics fan when I was a diehard Larry uh, Magic Johnson Los Angeles Lakers fan? But Matt, but um, as much as I love Magic, Lenny was my guy, number 34. And when he died, it was just like, no, 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 not now. Not now. No, not when he was just ready to dominate the league. Not now. But uh, that happened. Ben Wilson. Ben Wilson. If you remember, there's a good 30 for 30 on Ben Wilson. I remember the day that he got shot because Ben Wilson was my contemporary. When I was playing high school basketball, and we didn't have ESPN, and we didn't have the uh, cable or anything like that. How I learned about high school basketball players were by the magazine, Street and Smiths. So every year, I would get about four or five magazines where it would have the top 50, top 100 high school basketball players. And at the time I was playing high school basketball, I wanted to be just as good as those guys were. I never was, but that was my competition. And Ben Wilson, I remember that guy. I remember Ben Wilson in 1986 being the number one player in the nation. And he was out there, and he played for Simeon High School in Chicago. And he got into an argument with somebody and was shot and killed. And so I remember the, the grief, and I remember the shock. And I just remember just Chicago just melting down. Now, look, if you're under the age of 40 or 45, I'm quite sure what I'm saying to you right now is basically Swahili and Chinese. But for the generation of those who remember that, you didn't have to be from Chicago. Anybody at that time who was under the age of 18, you guys know what I'm talking about. For anybody who was under the age of 18 and played sports, you knew who Ben Wilson was. And this was before cable television. This was before the internet. This was before cell phones and TMZs and ESPNs and news alerts and everything like this. This is where you either had to get your news from the local TV station or from the local newscast. 
radio cast. That was it. That was it. There was no CNN or Fox News or MSNBC. There was none of that kind of stuff to translate this news. They didn't have people coming on for hours upon hours talking about these people. So when Ben Wilson died and when he got shot, it was just like, holy fucking shit. This guy was going to be an NBA superstar. This guy was going to be the same thing that Len Bias was, except that he hadn't even gotten to college yet. You speak about Joe Delaney. You speak about a guy who won Rookie of the Year with the Kansas City Chiefs, and he was on his way to becoming one of the greatest Chiefs running backs ever, along with that Podolak and 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 Christian Okoye and, and and Garrett. He was going to be one of those guys. One afternoon, sunny afternoon, he was out there chilling at the park, and right in his hometown, and he heard three people, three kids drowning. He ran to save them, save one of them. And he drowned with the other two. I mean, that's heartbreaking. Lyman Bostock was shot by somebody who thought that he was messing around with his ex-wife. And he just met the woman. He was just in the car. Happened to be a bystander. And the piece of shit that shot him got off on it. Not only did he get off with killing him, he was acquitted of murder. I think he spent a couple of months in jail. Then moved right back to Gary, Indiana, the same area where he murdered this man. And no one from that community took him out? Unbelievable. So it's stuff like that. Salvador Sanchez, 23 years old, killed in a car wreck. Hank Gathers, my God. You remember Hank Gathers of Loyola Marymount? He died on the court after catching an alley-oop. You remember the run that Loyola Marymount went on? I believe back in, what, 1989? I remember at home, I remember living in San Diego at the time, watching that game with my boy Mike Hootner. And it was just like, are you fucking serious? Because we loved the way that Loyola Marymount played. We loved that running gun offense with Bo Kimball and Hank Gathers and the coach Paul Westhead at the time. We loved it. And we we followed Loyola Marymount where they were scoring like 140 points a game back in the day. Where they were running up and down and shooting threes and all this kind of stuff. So when he died, it was like, are you, are you fucking kidding Jerome Brown, Jerome Brown dying in a car accident. Ernie Davis you know, dying of illness when he was drafted by the Cleveland Browns. It was going to be in the same backfield as Jim Brown, and that was going to form one of the greatest one-two punches in NFL history. So, man, you know, those are the things. James Dean dying in a, crane, in a uh, car crash. Otis Redding dying in a plane crash. Aaliyah. I just remember Aaliyah dying. Oh, my gosh. That hit hard. That hit hard. And what's worse is when you find when you found out the news where it was kind of like the pilot was kind of telling them, hey, look, you know what? This plane that we're on, uh, look, this is carrying way too much equipment. We're not even going, we're not even going to be able to rise and fly this thing. There was no way. They were on an island shooting a video. And Aaliyah and, his, and her crew, they wanted to leave. And the pilot was like, we can't leave. It's, it's too heavy. Well, the thing ain't going to last. They were like, look, get in the fucking plane and fly it. And the guy just happened to be on, the pilot just happened to be a guy who was, you know, doing cocaine or whatever. I don't know. I, I think that came out a little bit later on. I, I had nothing to do with them crashing, but the guy was like, okay, you're Aaliyah. You're a superstar. Okay. And sure enough, sure enough, always trust the pilot. That thing went up and went straight down. And a beautiful, Aaliyah was 
absolutely a beautiful, beautiful woman. No wonder R. Kelly, never mind. But it was just like stuff like that. So it was like when people die like that before the story was written, before the story, their lives finally came out and how this is going to end up. That's the tragedy. That's where you say dying too young. So, I mean, the legacy of Kobe Bryant, and look, Gigi's 13 years old. There was no legacy with her. No 13-year-old has a legacy. That's, that's what parenting is for. You know, if you're starting to build a legacy at 13 years old, there's something wrong with your parenting. You're, as a 13-year-old, you should be listening to your parents, and your parents should be giving you good information and teaching you about becoming a respectable, hardworking, decent human being. So Gigi at 13 years old, just like the other survivors of that age, they had no legacy, which is even worse because they didn't even have an opportunity to start building on theirs. At least guys like Bias and Ben Wilson and Ernie Davis and Otis Redding and Bruce Lee and those guys, Buddy Holly, at least those guys, Richie Valens, at least those guys started the foundation. Gigi didn't even have an opportunity even to lay the foundation. I mean, hers was just still in the works. Those Hers were still blueprints. So along with the other, all along with her teammates, so. That's horrible, but I mean, at least with, at least with, <sighs> boy, I hate saying this stuff, man, I really do. At least with Kobe Bryant, 41 years old, way too young, way too young, man, but at least he had the opportunity to give us everything he got in the thing that he loved to do the most. He got the opportunity to, to realize all of his dreams. Everything that he dreamt of of a kid, as a kid, he got to be an NBA superstar. He got to be an all-time great. He got to go down and sit on the, sit in the same table as Michael Jordan as being one of the greatest ever. He got to be an NBA champion. He got to be the face of the league. He got to be immortal. He got to be a legend playing basketball. So, yeah, man, it's tragic and it's horrible and it's terrible. And at least he was able to do that. And I think that he and we... And everybody should be thankful that the Lord gave him and us an opportunity for Kobe to realize his most precious and most wanted dreams growing up as a child. Wendell's World in Sports, or you can call me Wendell, you can call me Wendell, you can call me Spindle, you can call me Jindle, but you can call me Wendell. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, speaking about the ending, my eulogy. feel a little bit better. I thought, um, speaking about Kobe Bryant, I thought when I spoke again, when I did the emergency podcast, it was mainly, I was being selfish. And it was mainly just something where I just wanted to let you know how I felt. And it was just a matter of shut up. I just want to talk. It's one of those deals where it's like I, I need to start the therapeutic process right now. So I just need to talk. And I just need to talk. And whatever direction I go, don't steer me back to where I need to be going. I don't have a plan. I don't I don't know. I'm just going to talk. 
I'm just gonna tell you what my heart is telling me right now. I'm, 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 I'm no mind, no, no. I'm not gonna be thinking with my mind when I did the Kobe Bryant. My thoughts on Kobe Bryant. It was straight from my heart to my mouth. So whatever my heart was giving me to say, that's what I was saying. This podcast is more of with the heart and the head. So I hope that uh, it's just a little bit different. And again, it just kind of makes me want to put to bed to rest Kobe Bryant for me. For me. For those who knew him and for those who want to follow him and do everything differently in terms of that, that's fine. But for me, I'm um, this is my way of saying Kobe. This is my deal with, um, this is the way I'm going to be talking about with you and we're going to be moving on. And you know what's even interesting is, I bet you right now, as we're paying homage and this past week people are talking about Kobe this and Kobe that, whatever you believe, whatever you believe when it comes to death, where you're, whether you believe in the Lord or whether you believe when you die, you die, that's it. Whether you're an atheist, hey, no problem. But for me, it's like, I bet you Kobe's right now in heaven going, look, guys, I, I really appreciate this. I really do. But right now, I'm going to be with Vanessa. And I'm going to be with my other kids. And I'm going to make sure that they're being all right. So I really appreciate this. I really do. No disrespect. But a lot of the things that are going on as far as the tributes and everything, I've kind of missed some of that because right now I've been dealing with, or I've been wanting to be there for, first my, my for, first for Gigi, her spirit, and also to be with my wife and my daughters. And I'm not saying that the the I'm not saying that the memorials and everything shouldn't take place. I'm definitely not saying that at all. But I think Kobe would have been like, you know, you give me 24, 48 hours to grieve and say this sucks and this there and this is terrible. But then after that, let's kind of move it on. Let's start playing the games and let's start doing what you need to do and let's start moving the game forward because Kobe would have wanted it that way. God, I hate when I say that shit. Kobe would have wanted it if we would have. How do we know? But that, that's my guess. That's my guess. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. I want to end the show with this. And I think it needs to be said. I think it needs to be brought up. One of the things that I think Kobe was battling through the first part of his career, and it had a lot of it had to do with him being 17 years old, going into the NBA and his upbringing and everything like that. I think for the first part of his of his public existence, I think that Kobe was figuring out who he was, not just as a man, but also as a black man. Because I remember, I remember, sorry, I'm sorry, black community, I'm going to have to bring this up. I remember all the talk and all the chatter about Kobe wasn't black enough. Because he didn't have the stereotypical black person's experience. Do you remember that? I, I was a little bit surprised about all of the, the, the love and support from the black community. And maybe it's because, you know, when something as tragic as that, like that happens, you take the time to go ahead and do what you need to do to be respectful and honor the dead and all those type of things. But I bet you that's, that's Saturday night or that's Sunday morning. I bet you in the black community, I bet you the love as far as the Kobe Bryant was concerned about him being a black man. I think they bet you they related more to him being closer to the black man of Tiger Woods than say the black man of Colin Kaepernick or LeBron James. You know what I'm saying? In terms of, you know, what Kobe this and Kobe, and Kobe be living out in Orange County and Orange, Kobe didn't marry, Kobe marrying that Mexican women and woman and his kids are mixed and 
you know, you see who he'd be hanging around with, you know, you see all his boys and his partners and his business partners are all white and Rob Palenka and all this kind of nonsense. I'm not saying I believe in any of that stuff. I'm not saying that at all. But, come on, man, let's be for real. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's an overwhelming majority. But I'm, I'm just saying this. With all of the, some of y'all are lying. Some of y'all are lying big time. We're all Kobe this and Kobe. Oh my gosh, this is terrible. For those, I bet you there's a decent number of people who are sitting there talking about, oh, Kobe, we're going to miss Kobe. And Kobe was so such a bright light and he had so much to give and this, that, and the other. Those were the same people that bet you 48, hour ago, 48 hours before them saying that they were up there saying, well, you know, Kobe be marrying that Hispanic woman. He didn't marry that black woman and he raped that white woman and this, that, and the other and blah, 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 blah. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Kobe had to fight the, he wasn't black enough. And, you know, because he didn't grow up in a stereotypical black person experience. He wasn't born in an impoverished, he wasn't born in the, in the ghetto, he wasn't born in Liberty Heights, he wasn't born in Southeast D.C., he wasn't born in uh, Watts or Inglewood or Compton or any of them places. He came from a two-parent home. He didn't have sisters in prison. His brother wasn't shot and killed. His mom wasn't a dope fiend. His father wasn't selling drugs in prison or anything like that. He grew up in Italy, not in the inner cities of urban America. When he moved back to the States after his NBA playing father, Joe Jellybean Bryant, was done playing in Italy. They moved to the suburbs of Philadelphia, Lower Marion Township. You want to take a look at the demographics of that town, the racial makeup of the township from the 2000 census, 90% white, 4% black. So that's the, so he goes from, so Kobe goes from Italy. Well, I don't think there are many brothers out there in, in Italy. So he goes from that experience over to, to lower Merriam, where it's 90% white. The median income household was $86,000. Don't think that the medium income in in downtown inner city Minneapolis or Chicago or Seattle or Austin, Texas or Phoenix, Arizona is reaching somewhere around $86,000. The medium income for a family was $115,000. So let me tell you something. About 1.9% of the families and 4.5% of the population were below the poverty line. When you're speaking about the area where Kobe Bryant grew up, it was, shall we say, if it wasn't affluent, it definitely wasn't ghetto or in the city. So just like Steph Curry, Kobe had to fight those type of things because Kobe didn't have to move around from place to place. He came from a stable background. He went to a private school, Lower Marion High School, before, this was before you know, schools like Oak Hill and Flint Hill and IMG and all these other schools, all these other basketball factories uh, started started churning out and started having players who were five-star recruits being able to go to those schools. This was before all of that stuff happened. So this is the situation that Kobe scored 1,300 on his SAT. Come on, man. What real black man scored 1,300 on his SAT? I'm just talking about the ignorance. I'm just talking about the foolishness. I'm just talking about so many elements of the black community that sometimes hold down folks like Kobe Bryant or hold down folks like Chris Webber or hold down folks or, or brought a, a bad stigma to someone like a Brian Gumble or someone like a, uh, well, O.J. Simpson's a different story. But what I'm saying is the fact that, you know, Kobe didn't, Kobe didn't grow up like the typical NBA basketball player, just like Steph Curry didn't grow up like the typical 
NBA basketball player. I mean, what brother do you know in the NBA that's going to be speaking three languages? English, Spanish, and Italian like Kobe did. So he had to he had to fight that. He had to fight that stigma. And hey, he married a Hispanic woman. Let's just call it. Let's just call it like we see it now. I know the man is dead, but then again, let's just call it because he was getting he was getting some flack for that. His parents didn't show up to his wedding because of their disapproval of him not marrying Vanessa because of her age or because of what she did or whatever. It was a lot of it had to do with the fact that she wasn't black and his parents wanted Kobe to marry someone who was black. And as we know in the black community, that's a big deal. I mean, Hispanic women, they might not be as bad for black women or they might not be as angry. Black women might not get as angry from a black man marrying a Hispanic or a, or a white woman, but Hispanics aren't that far below in terms of raising the ire of black women talking about, man, well, you can't marry us, especially when it comes to someone like a Kobe Bryant who is, who is as polished of a black man. I mean, this isn't because we hear black women saying this bullshit all the time. Oh, there's no good black men around because black men are in prison and this, that, and the other. And, and woe is us. So we can't find a good black man anywhere, blah, blah, blah. So we finally find a black man. And he goes ahead and marries a Hispanic girl. So black women were not very happy about that. This is just community. This is just conversations that go on in the black community. For those who are sitting there yelling and screaming at me and doing this, that, and the other, when black folks get together, when black folks have discussions about this, this is the type of stuff that's being brought up. This is the kind of stuff that in the neighborhoods, in the barbershops, and, the, and, the, and, and everything like this, when it surrounds black folks, this is the kind of stuff that we talk about. This is the kind of stuff that, we'll, if you want to get into it, this is what we talk about. So for, their, for those folks sitting up there talking about, oh my goodness, this, that, and the other, this is what black folks be talking about. I'm, I'm letting you in. I'm letting you in on some of the conversations. So Kobe's up here marrying a Hispanic woman. Then he's accused of raping some white girl in Colorado. So it was a situation where black folks were sitting up there going, man, what's up with you, man? What's up? And I'm not saying that, damn, Kobe, you can't rape a black woman. I'm not saying that at all, but it's like, damn, what's up, what's up with you trying to go after a white woman to begin with? After you're up there marrying a Hispanic woman, what, black women ain't good enough for you? Have you had any black girlfriends? I mean, have you had anything dealing with black women? I mean, now, you want to be Tiger Woods or something like that? You want to be you know, one of them deals? You want to be Derek Jeter up there running around dating white women all of a sudden? Now, black women ain't good enough for you? So that was the kind of stuff that Kobe Bryant was dealing with during that time, especially after he was accused of rape in Colorado. Oh, man, it's, I mean, the brothers and the sisters in the communities were questioning his blackness big time. Again, he was more beloved. And I bet you in L.A. during that time and even afterwards, I bet you that Kobe was more beloved in the Hispanic community than the black community. If you want to take the totality of his 20 years of playing basketball with the Los Angeles Lakers, I bet you the majority of time he was more beloved in the Hispanic communities in L.A., than he was in the black communities. And I'm not saying that, you know, Paul George and all of those guys and Kawhi Leonard who idolized or patterned their game after Kobe, who, who are big Kobe fans. I'm not saying that all black folks and all black people in the area were, were down on Kobe. But there was a time where, you know, it was like, hey, man, you know, I mean, Kobe represents more Tiger Woods to black folks than, again, Colin Kaepernick or LeBron James. And we know... Black folks know how we feel about Tiger Woods, or at least the majority of us do. So he had to deal with that. Then there was the comments made in 2014. Remember concerning Trayvon Martin? Remember when he went after the Miami Heat 
for that photo they took of him. They, they took of uh, they, the Miami Heat took a photo, a team photo of them wearing hoodies. And Kobe came out and said that, you know what, black people should not immediately rush to the defense of black people simply because of his or her race. Remember that? It was a, it was an interview with the New Yorker in 2015. And again, he criticized LeBron James and the Miami Heat for posting a photo wearing hoodies in solidarity with the Martin family. And in fact, his quote was, I won't react to something just because I'm supposed to because I'm an African-American. That argument doesn't make any sense to me. So we want to advance as a society and a culture. But say if something happens to an African-American, we immediately come to his defense. Yet you want to talk about how far we progressed as a society? Well, we progressed as a society. Then don't jump to someone's defense just because they're African-American. You sit and you listen to the facts just like you would in any other situation, right? So I won't assert myself. <laughs> well, 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 well. I bet you one thing. I must have been music to the ears of Tucker Carlson and Larry Elder and the and the assholes on Fox and Friends. I'm quite sure they Laura Ingram. I'm quite sure, man. They were like, man, Kobe's our Kobe's our knight in shining armor after hearing some bullshit like that. Jim Brown responded by talking about, you know what? Hey, if this was something to where we were like getting together a summit, remember the the summit the historical summit of black athletes that Jim Brown put together in 1967 to support Muhammad Ali. Well, Jim Brown was talking about after he heard Kobe say those comments, he was like, let me tell you something, man. If I had to do that all over again and get the most prominent black men to uh, stand in support of somebody, Kobe Bryant definitely wouldn't be one of them. So he was, he was not beloved for at times in the community. So again, it was just interesting for me to see the love and support for Kobe in terms of the community at whole. At, at whole. But, uh, you know, I think Kobe turned it around. And I think also Kobe, I think also Kobe, Kobe showed. And I think Kobe is the best example of this. I don't think Kobe ever straight. I think the whole deal, remember with Chris Webber? Chris Webber was one of these guys. He was born in inner city Detroit but he went to Detroit Country Day because of his basketball playing. And while Jalen Rose and some other folks were down there at Southwestern and Northwestern and in the schools, the inner city schools of uh, Detroit and you know, Country Day with this opulent, high-class private school where the kids were driving up there in BMWs and they had the best of this and the best of that and the best of education in Detroit. And for a while, Chris Weber was conflicted because he was like, man, you know what? I'm, I'm starting to kind of like, I mean, I'm going to... Detroit Country Day, but I'm also living in the hood, and it's kind of like, I'm kind of like at a loss, I don't know exactly which way to go, or how to feel, and this, that, and the other, because, you know, folks in the neighborhood are talking about, man, you will sell out, you'd be going to that white school at Country Day, blah, 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 but you know, I live in the hood, so I don't know exactly, and I think it took Chris Weber a long time, because Chris Weber was very, still is, Chris Weber is articulate, he's thoughtful, he's smart, he's intelligent, and it's like, well, what I'm learning at Detroit Country Day really doesn't mesh with the neighborhood that I'm living in. So I'm up here getting called Uncle Tom and an Oreo and, and you know, white man, or, you, know, you know, black man, a white man, whatever, and a sellout and all this kind of stuff. Because why? Because I speak with intelligence, because I articulate, because I'm intelligent, because I'm thoughtful, because, I mean, what? I mean, what's, the, what's the deal? So I think it took Chris Weber a while 
but finally come to terms and come to grips and become comfortable in his own skin by saying, yeah, I'm a black man. Yeah, I'm a proud black man. But guess what? I'm also a smart black man. I'm an intelligent black man. I'm a diverse black man. And I can work in different types of communities, black man. And just because I can go ahead and go to Detroit Country Day and talk to people and relate to people and have friends who are rich and white and Jewish or whatever, that doesn't make me less of a black man than the person who's struggling in inner, inner city Detroit trying to figure out how they're going to get through the day. And I think that's the same thing that happened with Tiger Woods. Excuse me, with um, definitely not with Tiger Woods. I think that the same thing would happen with Kobe Bryant. I think Kobe Bryant had an identity crisis for a long time because I'm quite sure he heard that bullshit. I'm quite sure he heard that nonsense. Hey, man, what, a, what, 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 a, what black man is out there talking about speaking three languages and dating a white girl and raping a white girl and marrying a Hispanic girl and, and doing all this kind of stuff? He, he ain't a real black man, right? I mean, he ain't, he ain't down. He ain't a brother, this, that, and the other. He ain't a true brother, this, that, and the other. So I think in the end, because Kobe stayed true to himself, because Kobe was someone who was kind of like, hey, man, this is who I am. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm unabashed about who I am. And oh, by the way, I can also whip the ass in basketball. I think that he was a good role model for those who are black to say, or young black men to say, hey, man, you know, it's, it's okay to be as intelligent as you need to be. You can be as intelligent as you want to be. And of course, Barack Obama really took that took that idea and took it to the stratosphere every time you hear him talk and the fact that he became the president of the United States and kept it real for for his entire administration and, and, and still keeps it real, him and Michelle. But uh, yeah, Kobe was like, hey man, you, you can be intelligent. You can be cultured. You can be worldly. You can be culturally diverse. You can be educated in all areas of your life. And it doesn't increase your blackness. I mean, you can you can live the life of the coffees and or of the of the Huxtables, and still be cool and still be a black man. You don't have to have a father who's not around. You don't have to have a brother who's in the gang. You don't have to sell dope. You don't have to sell drugs. You don't have to live in the inner city. You don't have to do all these things to be a authentic, real black man. You can grow up in an area where it's culturally diverse that you can mix and mingle and deal and work with and understand all different types of races, places, and faces. So with Kobe, yeah. I say, I say thank you for that. All right, I'm out of here. I want to thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Enjoy yourselves watching the Super Bowl, Kansas City versus the San Francisco 49ers. I'll be back. I'm going to start. I'm going to get into some Georgetown basketball. My God, I sure hope they win against St. John's. If not, oh, I've been following my Georgetown Hoyas. I've got some things I want to say about them. I want to, I want to shut down all the haters. We're gonna shut down all the haters. We're gonna bring some. Gonna bring some some intelligence into this conversation about my Georgetown Hoyas NBA All Star games coming up. The NBA trade trade deadline is coming up, so I want to talk about that. I'm gonna start paying a little bit more attention now to college basketball and bring you some of that also. So some good times lay ahead for Wendell's World in Sports. Please go ahead and rate and review on Apple iTunes. Leave a comment. I don't care what it is. I don't even care about the ratings. I mean, sure, I would love a five-star. No, no, no question about it. But if you genuinely hate my show and hate me and, <laughs> and, go, and want to give me a one-star and say that I suck and everything like that, hey, man, go for it. <laughs> more, more power to you. But the more five-stars for whatever. The, just, just enjoy the program. Just enjoy the program. And live life one day at a time. Take it easy. And if you're a good person, stay the way you are. Because the more good people that we have on this planet, the better. Music. Music.